0: Welcome to episode 305 of Charlotte Reader's Podcast, a literary podcast in four acts where books and writing topics of Center Stage, and where authors give voice-to-written words. In Act 1, we have community writing news, uh, we check in with the host, we provide reading recommendations, and we have a feature author, Stephen Anu, and his debut novel, Rook, a true crime thriller. In Act 2, we have Charlotte Two Minutes of Tips, and we have... Uh, advice by authors Brian Langhorn and Tracy Buchanan, contributors to the Charlotte Readers Podcast Community blog. We discuss tips for aspiring authors and the best tool in the author toolkit, Perseverance. In Act 3, we feature two authors. We feature Makila Stevely and her historical fiction novel, Song of Redemption, and also uh, Patty Meredith and her novel, Song of Heaven, set in Carthage, North Carolina in 1998. In Act 4, last but not least, we feature New York Times bestselling novelist and Charlotte author Megan Miranda and her latest suspense novel, The Last to Vanish. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-hosts, Hannah Rue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening.
1: The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast, Beyond 300, is about you,
2: the listener. We want your feedback, opinions, recommendations, and questions. Email us or leave us a voice message and you might hear us mention you or play your message on the podcast. Just go to the homepage or contact page at charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the links to email us or leave a voice message. It's easy to do. Let's have some fun together.
0: All right, welcome listeners and uh, welcome uh, Hannah and uh, Sarah. How y'all doing?
3: I'm good. How are you doing?
0: I'm good. great. <laughs>
3: Hanging in there. <laughs> <laughs> All
0: right. All right. Well, before we get to what's up with the uh, with us host, uh, let's do a few uh, community announcements. I'd start out with uh, one from uh, Charlotte uh, Lit. Uh, they're right here in Charlotte. They've got uh, a lot of courses they offer, and um, we're gonna hear from Paul Reilly, one of the co-founders, is going to tell us about uh, what's coming in September. So let's give a listen.
4: I'm Paul Riali, co-founder of Charlotte Lit. We've just announced our new program calendar, and it is packed full. Here are some highlights for September 2022. We kick off the year with a can't-miss event, poet and social justice advocate Reginald Dwayne Betts, September 9th, with our partner, Arts at Queens. We're excited to welcome Charlotte Readers podcast co-host, Sarah Archer, to our faculty. On September 14, Sarah will be in conversation with fellow author Patrice Gopo, About the experience of writing in more than one form. Do you love taking a deep dive into the classics? Over six weeks, beginning September 20, we'll read and study the Iliad together with poet Jeffrey Thompson. For fiction writers, we have two new classes. First is writing the short story with Dustin M. Hoffman, who's published more than 80 short stories. Next, the title tells it all, Sex, How to Write About It Well, with novelist Sarah Creech. For nonfiction writers, Stephanie Elizondo Greist comes into town to lead a community conversation called "Memoir as Witness." She'll also teach a masterclass called "Writing the Body." Finally, September first is the opening day for entries to Charlotte Lit's Lit South Awards. We offer seven thousand dollars in total prizes plus publication in our journal Litmosphere. I am very excited to name our judges this year. In nonfiction, Melissa Fabos in poetry, A. Van Jordan, and in fiction, Bryn Chancellor. You can find all of this and subscribe to our newsletter at charlottelit.org. We hope to see you there.
0: Yeah, how about that? Uh, A lot of activity for September.
2: Yeah, I just got their catalog in the mail, and I'm like, I want to sign up for everything.
3: Congrats (laughs) to you, too. (laughs) Thank you.
0: yeah so tell us about that conversation you're gonna have sir
2: yeah so it's on i think september 14th um with patrice gopo who obviously is a wonderful writer and friend of the show and we're going to be talking about writing in different media and changing forms um i know she's done essays and children's literature and i do um, different types of fiction different genres and screenwriting as well and poetry so <laughs> i think we'll have a lot to talk about there
0: yeah and uh listeners um we've had uh both uh patrice and sarah on as author guests and you can uh you need to go back in your podcast feed and scroll but if you don't want to do that just go to our website under the guest uh menu tab and find their names and click on them uh you can find them by first name and listen to, to their episodes yeah i mean that's they've got a lot of stuff here uh in in uh, september um They've got sex. They've got Dustin Hoffman. I want to say Dustin Hoffman because I think of the actor. <laughs> yeah, guys. me too. Dustin, Dustin M. Hoffman, <laughs> <right>? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dustin M. Hoffman, and then they got the one you're doing. So a lot of lot of things going on there, and uh, of course the contest is something for writers. If you want to enter, um, take a look at that as well. The Litmosphere, their first uh, edition came out last year. They're going to do another one. Um, so yeah, a lot of good stuff going on there. And I should mention also the Charlotte Writers Club is uh, going to kick off there year in September and uh, their first speaker they have one speaker a month uh, it's open uh, to the public and then you can join it's, it's not very expensive they meet at the tavola center on uh, tavola road and uh, they're they're gonna have uh, they're gonna have a novelist on uh, her name is kelly Mustaine, i hope i didn't mispronounce that but her her topic is gonna be line by line making every word count so on tuesday september the 20th uh, uh, 6.30 p.m., um, and it's, uh, I think their little premise says, uh, whether you're an outliner, or a freestyler, a novelist, a poet, or a writer, you get where you're going with the writing project one line at a time, and she's going to talk about that and how to get that done. She's USA Today and SEBA uh, best-selling uh, novelist, uh, so good stuff there as well. A lot of stuff going on in the community, we'll try to do more of this uh, as we uh, go forward as a... Uh, let you know what's going on in, in our riding community, both in Charlotte area and around the state and around the region. Uh, anything else to throw in in that category, folks? I don't think
2: so. No, it's exciting stuff coming up.
0: All right, good stuff. All right, what's up with the host? Uh, we're we're recording this early, but it's uh, when they listen, it's August thirtieth. What's uh, what's early September look like for y'all?
3: Well. Um, I'm not quite sure, actually. I think I'm heading into the region of the unknown, so I think early September will be kind of a free-for-all for for me. I could be giving birth at any point, so.
2: Certain big variables in play in life. Uh
3: Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm just sort of along for the ride at this point. Not moving a whole lot.
0: Yeah, we're moving uh, ferociously to get all our September episodes recorded as well before Hannah jumps out appreciate. of the plane here to, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly uh well what about you sir
2: um not too much going on i've been been writing been reading um like paul reality graciously shout out i do have that event coming up in september with patrice gopo for charlotte lit um and they also published their whole um catalog of classes for this upcoming programming year so in addition to that event which is free um, I'm doing a couple of different seminars with them about screenwriting. I'm going to be doing one in this fall, um, which is kind of like an overview of screenwriting and talking about the business of it. And then later in the year, I'm going to be doing more of like a deep dive into the craft of screenwriting. So if you're interested in either of those, they're up on the website now. You can register. Um, and, yeah, I'm excited for those. And, Landis, you're teaching a, a course with them too, right?
0: Yeah, I am. It'll be in uh, in the fall. It's uh... – it's about uh, interviewing and uh, on both sides of the mic. So uh, cool. had a had to handle an interview and had to get ready for one and put your best foot forward. So we'll talk more about that as we get closer to that. And uh, yeah, is doing great stuff and um, it'll be a lot of fun. Hey, as far as I'm concerned, uh, you know, early September for me is going to be a fun trip to uh, out west to California. Uh, I'm, Turning a very young 65, I hope, and we're (laughs) going to go uh, play golf at uh, Pebble Beach with my son. My wife's coming out as well, Janet, and uh, we're going to do that for a couple of days and see what that course is like uh, I've heard it's pretty good so we'll but the gonna be a couple nice. others around that area too yeah 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 so I'll be I'll be off the podcast <laughs> grid during that time um, good for you <laughs> actually we'll, yeah exactly um we will have an episode released that time but I won't I won't be there uh, when it happens uh I'll be on it when we're recording but not there when it happens <laughs> all right so uh real quickly
2: We have an affiliation with libro.fm because you can get audiobooks from them and when you do you support independent bookstores if you'd like to sign up with them for your audiobooks use the promo code charlotte reader and claim your free audiobook
0: all right that's a little lead into uh what we're reading because some of the reading we do is uh through audiobook at least for me and uh, as always, we start off with uh, Hannah, the reader. <laughs> Hannah, what do you what do you have? For yeah, us?
3: so I'm actually right now going to mention two books that I'm planning on reading. <laughs> so <laughs> um, yeah, I've been I feel like I've been trying my best to kind of since we're working so far ahead. I'm like, okay, I gotta like be more strategic with my list here I can't read like 80 books within a week so (laughs) um but I just picked up Ham on Rye by Charles Bukowski who's one of my favorites just um I think he's kind of a crazy person or was kind of a crazy person and I, I love his writing and this is supposed to be sort of um kind of like the novel, but also sort of autobiographical, just about his teenage years and just sort of being a rebellious uh, young man. So, I'm excited to read that. And also, We Were Liars by E Lockhart, and that's a YA book that I've been hearing about probably since I was like, I don't even know, like a decade now. I think it's been around that long, <laughs> but I've been meaning to read it for a long time. And I was talking to a bookseller over the weekend. She was like, you know sometimes you just want to read something that's very easy and this is that and I'm like that's kind of where I'm at right now I think I need something that's a little bit light um so I'm looking forward to that just kind of diving in there just as we move through the month
2: so how about you Sarah um so I well I also have been behind in reading just because we're (laughs) we're kind of (laughs) stockpiling the episodes here but I am reading um a Good Man, It's Hard to Find and Other Short Stories by Flannery O'Connor, which I, the only thing that I've read of her is I think it's actually that title story back in high school. Um, and she's one of those writers who was just always on my list. So I was like, oh, I have to kind of dive into her work. Um, both just because she's obviously a legend, but also people over the years have recommended her to me specifically saying like, oh, I think you would really love her style. So I, I kept thinking, oh, I have to read her work. I have to read her work. And I'm finally doing it. <laughs> she's been on my list forever. And I'm just blown away by her work. I, I love her style and the force of her writing. Um, so I'm I'm looking forward to, she obviously doesn't have like a huge body of work, but it's incredibly high quality. I'm looking forward to reading more of it when I um when i get the time mm-hmm. and a nice little bonus too is i found there's a a video on youtube of her reading that story a good man is hard to find to an audience so it was really cool to i read it first and then listen to the video later and just to hear it in her voice was was really cool um she has that like old old school southern accent that sounds exactly like Ooh. my grandmother so <laughs> <laughs> i love <will> that <laughs> now i hear her talking when i'm reading the story so that's <laughs> wonderful
0: <laughs> yeah, that's great and uh I've got a couple as well, but before I do, I'm going to let uh, Mark West from Story Charlotte Blog jump in and uh, share his uh, recommendation for the week.
5: Hello, this is Mark West with the Story Charlotte Blog. My recommendation today is The Wright Brothers by the famous historian David McCullough. David McCullough recently died, but he left us with a legacy of amazing works of history that really read more like novels. When McCullough was a student at Yale, he majored in English. And I think that background in literature helped him with his writing. The Wright Brothers was one of McCullough's last books. It was published in 2015. And it delves into the early lives of Wilbur and Orville Wright, as well as their sister, Catherine. McCullough places his emphasis on these three siblings and their complex interactions. Of course, McCullough tells the story of how the Wright brothers methodically solved all the problems associated with building and then flying the world's first heavier-than-air machine-powered plane. However, what I remember the most about the book is McCullough's portrayal of Orville, Wilbur, and Catherine as real people. McCullough captures their devotion to each other, the history of supporting each other during crises, their unusual ability to work together to solve problems, and their constantly evolving relationship. The personality of each of these siblings comes through in McCullough's book. Yes, The Wright Brothers is about aviation history, but it's also the story about a unique family, a unique American family. I recommend all of McCullough's books, every one of them that I've read, I've enjoyed. But for those of us who live in North Carolina, I think The Wright Brothers is the best book to start, for it tells the story behind our famous license plate motto. Of course, that motto was first in flight, but this book tells us the story behind that motto. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you.
0: Yeah, thanks, Mark. Uh, that's uh a great recommendation actually he and I were communicating because I had noticed that he had a piece on McCullough that was in the uh, I think it was in the Charlotte Observer uh, after McCullough died and uh, I said why don't you uh, make a recommendation about his books I've enjoyed McCullough's books as well um, I enjoyed his book 1776 and uh, I read the uh, Wright brothers as well he's just a, he was a really good writer really got uh, the story right but he told it almost like a novel. And hey, little known fact, uh, he's also a believer in the Mech deck because he came to Charlotte and spoke about it. So, so I, do, I do love that, yeah, for, for daily Declarations. But uh, yeah, so um, again, it's not exactly, uh, he's not a Charlotte writer, but uh, you know, it's a great tip. I mean, I think um, his, his books, uh, I think he must have, a, I don't know, 10 or more uh, historical novels that uh, read like fiction so check them out and uh, also before I share my tips we've also got uh, Alyssa Pressler with That's Novel Books so let's hear what she's recommending this week
6: Hi everyone this is Alyssa with That's Novel Books a used bookstore in Camp North End I'm calling to let you know about some of the books that I've read recently and uh, share my thoughts with you Um I just recently finished The House in the Cerulean Sea by TJ Klune. I really enjoyed it. It's a very sweet, touching book um, with a fantastical kind of element to it that I would recommend for anyone looking for something just kind of warm and fuzzy right now. I also just recently read Brown Girl Dreaming by Jacqueline Woodson. It is a uh, memoir slash poetry, <laughs> for lack of a better word, by about the author's life, and it is beautifully written. It's a fast read. I read it in two nights. Um, probably took me a total of maybe two and a half hours. It is phenomenally well done and I highly recommend it.
0: All right. More good recommendations. Uh, all right. I'll try not just, disappoint. point. I'm, I'm cheating a little bit because, uh, I was reading uh, a couple of these books at the same time and just finished them last night, just in time <laughs> to, to talk about them. Okay. And also I'm cheating. I'm also cheating because these are some that we might actually Feature down the line on the podcast because uh, they were sent to me. So uh, but uh, uh, first thing I'll recommend The Lost Adventures of Captain Hawkland, uh, Smuggler's Run by Bobby Nash. We're going to have uh, Bobby come on uh, an episode to talk about the one hour read because that's exactly what it was for 99 cents. I got it and it's a one hour read wow. and it's uh, it's a pretty fast, fast read. And uh, we're going to have him on to talk about, uh, I think, in the, uh, later in September about uh, how to write the one hour read and how to promote it and how it helps your other other writing projects, but this is a, you know, it's a typical adventure. Um, you know, this guy, uh, <laughs> he's got a jet pack, so that tells <laughs> a little bit about it, but he's got a jet pack, you know, there's somebody uh, gets uh, a boat, uh, some pirates take a boat into a secret island. It's almost, uh, you know, the treasure island kind of thing a little bit, you know, they they take the boat, they're dismantling, he has to come in and save the day on his jet pack, and it's kind of fun read. I uh, also recommend the Judas case by Nicholas Graham. Um, Chris Arvison sent this book to me. Uh, it's very interesting. It's uh, set in the time uh, of of Jesus, but it's a uh, it's a detective novel. It's uh, there's a the protagonist works for the Temple Guard, and he's investigating the death of Judas. Uh, and just you know, bringing in the background, the flavor of the of the times is really interesting. And the third one is uh, Truth is a Flightless Bird by Akbar Hussein. And I didn't get the title until the storks showed up in the uh, book, but apparently in Nairobi, Kenya, um, and also in other regions in Africa, the stork uh, is a pretty dominant presence. Uh, Most of the time you think about storks as delivering babies, right? Yeah,
3: exactly. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I wish that's how that, that well,
7: happened.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and often, that's exactly, uh-huh. you wish that would happen. But, uh, and oftentimes uh, you find them around water. But uh, apparently, storks have uh, gone to the big cities, uh, particularly in Nairobi, and they are the particular species of stork in, in Nairobi, Kenya, is five feet tall and has a wingspan of eight to 11 feet. Oh, my gosh and they eat garbage and they hang out on your roofs and <laughs> they're like pigeons
2: they, but five feet tall <laughs> yeah they're huge pigeons i mean like
0: and they figure into the story here because several times along the way and you know how you have particular things in novels where oh, that's an interesting marker for that particular book it's a uh, talisman or something and the and the, the storks become that kind of talisman and stare the protagonist in the face several times. Eat a cell phone at one point. So anyway, I haven't even told you a thing about the book yet, except for the storks involved. This is kind of a thriller. Uh it's uh, you know, a woman who's on a plane who's pregnant and is going to be a, a drug mule and, and you've got four or five people that are all facing uh obstacles in some fashion throughout the book. It's a pretty quick read. So Those are my recommendations. Uh, So a lot of books out there, folks. We'll put these uh, in the show notes so that you'll have uh, them and uh, we will uh, be right back in just a moment.
2: If you like what we're doing and would like to help us defray the costs of this podcast, please consider becoming one of our patrons through the Patreon website. For as little as $5 a month, say a coffee or a happy hour drink. You can help us out and in return we have a library of exclusive episodes over 120 that you can access through the patreon website just go to patreon.com forward slash charlotte Mears podcast and join up you can cancel any time by the way and we thank you in advance for whatever you decide to
0: contribute all right well first listeners we got a packed show today we got a lot of stuff uh, going on that uh, as we said in the opening, uh, a lot of features that involve writing tips. We've got uh, a lot of great authors that uh, have interesting, engaging books. But, uh, you know, we got the reading recommendations too that we just went through and we're we're really, I don't know, right, when we record one a week to get ready in September, it's right, we've got to really read fast, don't <laughs> <Yeah>. we? <laughs> I know,
3: it's almost
2: a Good motivation,
0: <laughs> yeah. Do y'all read more than one book? I try to do that sometimes, at a time.
2: I've been doing oh, that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I've got a few going right now <laughs>
3: it's hard right. though I feel that's like good. it's a really hard thing to do because I, I used to be like I can't I like to have like one thing to focus on but it's not mm-hmm. really possible right now so it's like I'll kind of like do a day book and a night book <laughs> and that's how I split it there up it. <laughs>
8: yeah
0: that's right all right well we got uh, we got an author feature now before we get into the creativity portion of our uh, show today um, and this uh, uh, author Uh, I interviewed, his name is uh, Steven, and I'm probably mispronouncing his last name, E-O-A-N-N-O-U. So uh, anyway, I I met him uh, at a uh, a literary festival up in Boone when I was up there this spring uh, with my book, and uh, there were a lot of interesting authors there. And you'll find out, you know, what attracted me to his writing when we uh, share the interview in just a moment. But let me just tell you briefly about him, and then we'll play the interview. Uh, Stephen holds an MFA from Queen's University of Charlotte. He he did that through the long distance uh, program, the non-resident program. He's got an MA from Miami University. Uh, His award-winning short story collection, Muscle Cars, was published by the Santa Fe Writers Project. Uh, He's been awarded an honor certificate from the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. And he won the Best Short Screenplay Award at the 36 Stars Denver Film Festival. He lives and writes in his hometown of Buffalo, New York. The setting and inspiration for much of his work, including this book, which uh, really pulled me in, the title is Rook, It's based on the true story of Al Nussbaum, uh, who, to his unsuspecting wife, Lolly, um, you know, Al being a loving, chess-playing family man, uh, turned out to be what J. Edgar Hoover called the most cunning fugitive alive. Uh, He really was a bank robber, and uh, he turned out also to be a really good... uh, mystery uh thriller fiction writer, uh after he was finally caught. Uh, uh Mystery Writers of America. He published a lot of stuff uh because he knew how to rob banks and he could tell stories. So uh with that little bit of introduction, uh let's uh let's play the interview. Hey Steve, welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast.
9: Thank you. Uh it's great to be here.
0: Yeah, thanks uh for being here and thanks uh for sharing uh your book uh, rook with us today and uh, also congratulations on that uh debut novel
9: uh thank you uh the book came out june 28th and it's been a whirlwind ever since so it's it's been a lot of fun
0: yeah but before you wrote this book uh there was another uh something you wrote that uh is how i met you we met at the uh boone literary festival this uh this spring and uh, you were reading from a story that you wrote that appeared uh uh i guess it was in a collection uh and it was about ted williams and his head tell us a little about that tell tell us about where where is ted williams head by the way uh
9: yeah stealing ted williams head is a short story that appeared in my um my short story collection muscle cars and ted williams head is you know the great baseball player uh his head was surgically removed and scientifically frozen and is stored in a warehouse in arizona and when i came across that very bizarre and strange fact i knew that i wanted to write about that um because it was weird and funny and i thought it would be uh pretty interesting to explore the idea of what if two kind of misfit guys went to high school together you know one foot in the past one foot in the present what if they decided to have one last kind of fling before they enter adulthood and and go and break in and steal Ted Williams' head and bury it out in the outfield at Fenway. Um so that's the the, the plot of the story and it's probably the story that's gotten the most um uh, most feedback and most emails from that short short story collection.
0: Yeah, it, it, you're right. It's just when you heard that you you couldn't help but not but not write about it, but uh, you you kind of made it sort of a humorous take here two guys sitting around playing video games or something as i recall and one of them has an idea they're drinking beer well let's go out and steal the head and uh you know and they're going to go break into this place where it's stored in a steel can filled with liquid nitrogen and then you find out well there's an element of truth to this which is always a great thing whenever you're writing a story right
9: yeah and i think if we think if i look back at muscle cars every story started with a little bit of a, a grain of truth or a memory or something that that I had experienced and, and certainly with rook um it's the story of a real person a, a real bank robber named al Nussbaum, that, that gave me the the launching point um, to explore his fictional life uh, or or me fictionalizing his life I should say
0: yeah well, that's a good segue in. we'll we'll leave. Uh, ted williams uh body and head alone for a moment and and jump into uh rook i i I had a great time reading the book i'm glad that we connected because it was a lot of fun um to to read it and fascinating to me uh as you said true story of a man al nussman uh, nussbaum who by all accounts is a compassionate loving husband and father who, who loves chess he's a deep thinker he reads but he has this secret life. Uh, Steve, uh, tell us about his secret life.
9: Yeah, you know, Al was always described as the smartest guy in the room. Um, you know, he got into a little bit of trouble in high school, but, uh, you know, we all kind of did. And he married his high school sweetheart and he opened up a business. So all by all accounts, he seemed to be on the right path and a good citizen. Um, but he did have the secret life. He he loved to rob banks. Um, and he and he was un- <laughs> just, a hob- yeah. just a little hobby just a little hobby. He was unrepentant about it even to the end of his life. So he would tell his wife, he he, he had opened up a, a little electronic shop, so think early 1960s, you know, transistor radios, walkie-talkies, you know, that kind of thing. And he'd tell his wife he's going out of town for business, but Al's real business was was robbing banks. And as you mentioned, he was a, a chess player. And so he viewed the robberies as a chess match between him and the authorities. Um, and he wanted to fool the FBI. He wanted to fool the police and get away with it. And so he would plan these robberies meticulously. They'd have disguises. They've had alternate escape routes, switching, swapping out cars. And at one point in an interview, he said that, that robbing banks was like, uh, playing chess for cash prizes <laughs> and
0: well, yeah I mean, that's amazing
9: yeah and he robbed like four or five banks before the fbi or his wife knew what he was up to um and the novel opens with the bank robbery that went wrong in brooklyn and that's what put all the attention on on this trio who was robbing banks and that's when their identities um were found out they went right to the top of the fbi's most wanted list um there was a million wanted posters of ale printed up and distributed readers digest offered ten thousand dollars reward they were on walter cronkite's cbs evening news and they still couldn't catch him they robbed two or three more banks while he was on the road Uh, but all the time he wanted to steal enough money and come back and and get his wife and child and escape to South America and start a new life. And that's what the novel's about.
0: Yeah, so tell us uh, how you found out about this story because some time has passed between the time he robs his last bank and the time that uh, uh, your book comes out, uh, you know, telling his story.
9: Yeah, so so Rob, uh, so the, the book, the novel itself takes place over 11 months um, at the end of 1961, almost to the end of 1962. Uh, when, Rob, uh, when Al is apprehended. I found out about Al's story about 10 years ago. I was standing in my kitchen one Sunday morning and and reading the newspaper that was spread out before me on the kitchen table, and the article just jumped out at me and said, it was uh, the strange true tale of a Buffalo bank robber turned crime novelist. <laughs> and I said, well, they had me right there. You know, I was already intrigued. I was already hooked. Um, and I read about Al and his double life. Um, and once he was apprehended, he was sentenced to 40 years in prison. Uh, and he served 14 before he was paroled. But he became in prison a writer, uh, a writer of crime novels. He, his short stories appeared in Ellery Queen, Ellery Queen and Mike Shane Mystery Magazine. Um, and if anyone out there remembers when we were kids, the scholastic books that we used to order through school, Al wrote for scholastic books. Um, so your, your kids were reading or we read, uh, uh, you know, stories of uh, books by a convicted bank robber. Um, and then after he was paroled, he moved out to L.A. and he worked in television. Um, so he had a whole second act, a whole second career as a writer. Um, he won a an award from the Mystery Writers of America, and at the Q and A after he was awarded, they said, "Al, you know, uh, what do you think about writing?" And he says, "Writing's fine, but I'd rather be robbing banks." So he was uh, a character right to the end.
0: Yeah, well, I've talked before about you know third acts and what people do after they get through with one career and move to another, but I've never never thought about it in terms of uh, well. You're going to come out of prison and then become a successful writer. It's more like, you know, you've worked in accounting, you've been a lawyer, you've been a banker, and then you're going to come out and be a, a successful writer.
9: Well, yeah. And he was writing crime fiction and he did not shy away from his history or his backstory because that gave him a certain panache among other oh, yeah. other crime writers, right? Because he actually did it. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't exactly. he wasn't was Leavenworth. He wasn't Marion Correctional Facility. He did steal t- Tommy guns.
0: Whoever said that uh, writing what you know wasn't a good way into uh, fiction didn't didn't know Al Nussman. Yeah, he took
9: it to the extreme. Absolutely, he did.
0: (laughs) So it is a true crime story, but it's also in the war of sorts. And I'm wondering how much of uh, what you included in the book you were able to confirm through research and how much you had to add because you can't can't turn a newspaper article into a novel without adding some context to the characters and you had sort of dialogue to deal with. Mm -hmm. So how did you go about that and how much of it can you say is uh, pretty close or as close to the truth as you can get but you know of course it's fiction you've got to right you know, sp- spice it up
7: a little bit
9: so there was a so the novel is 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 really uh, it, it alternates two points of views uh, so there's really two parts to the novel um and the chapters alternate one is with al on the road um you know trying to rob these banks trying to get enough money to come back and get his family and then they alternate chapters from his wife's point of view the woman who young woman, 24, 25, didn't understand what her husband was up to, her whole life's turned upside down and it's written from her point of view. It's as much the story of an end of a marriage as it is a crime novel, I think. So Ale's section was sort of easy to, uh, to write because I was able to get under the Freedom of Information Act, his FBI files. His prison records um, and those were fascinating to read. So everything about the dates, the amount of money that was stolen, the weapons used, the getaway cars, disguises, evidence—that's all. That's all true. It all came right from the files. Um, there is also a uh, biography written um, of Dan J. Marlowe, who was a a pulp novelist, um, written by Charles Kelly. And Dan J. Marlowe actually became Al's writing mentor and a sponsor, and they lived together after he was paroled. Uh, so there was a lot of information about Al's life within Charles Kelly's biography. Uh, so that was very helpful. But you're right, creating Al, the interior monologue, the dialogue, that was all imagined. Now, his wife's section of the story, you know, that was all my imagination. I knew she was left behind um I know she was young I know she had a she was now a single mom of a uh you know an infant that she had to raise on her own so that's all the the writer the novelist coming through just imagining what her life would be like in in 1962 in that type of situation
0: yeah well I, I loved uh you, you did what you know, best-selling novelist and good editors say to do when you started your novel, it was start in the middle of the action, and you start with a bank robbery, one that goes wrong. And you've got uh, it takes more than one person to rob a bank, and so Al's sort of directing everything. He's got these two minions who are sort of the uh, the muscle, if so to speak, uh, not too bright, uh, and they create some tension throughout the course of the book. How much were were you able to find out about the people that actually helped? Al robbed these banks.
9: Yeah, there was much more information about his, his main partner, Bobby Wilcoxon. He was the really a psychopath. He's the one that that killed the bank guard in Brooklyn and and wounded a New York City patrolman that that caused everything to fall apart um, for their crime spree. So there was a lot of information about Bobby out there uh, from the same places, readers digest, newspaper articles, the FBI files. Um, so that did create a lot of attention. But it's an important point that you you bring up. Um, Al was a chess player and he viewed this as a challenge, robbing banks as a challenge. And so he didn't go inside the banks. He communicated with um, Bobby and the other partner, Curry. Um, they were the muscle, they would go in the banks. Rob uh, Al would communicate with them th- you know, through walkie talkies. Uh, watching the street, controlling the action, moving them like pawns in a chess game. And for a while, it it worked quite well. I mean, they stole Mm two and a half million dollars in today's money. So they were very successful.
0: That's great. Well, I've got some more questions, but uh, this is Charlotte's podcast where authors give voice to the written word. So you've got a little two to three minute reading you're going to do for us. You want to set that up and uh, tell us where we are in the book and who's in the scene?
9: Yeah, I'm going to start right at the beginning because I think it, it it introduces, in a page and a half, all the main characters that are going to be really involved. Um, and it also gives you a, a glimpse of how he views his wife he left behind, uh, so there's a view into his interior world as well. Um, so this is Rook, part one, Gambit. Crime was always like a chess game for cash prizes. El Nussbaum. Chapter 1. A gentle snow, the first that year, had begun to fall. Flakes landed on the windshield, each crystal distinct and plain to see, before the wipers cleared the glass. Snow accumulated on the bare trees that lined King's Highway, but melted as soon as it touched the sidewalk in front of the Lafayette National Bank. A police radio, one that Al had rigged to the station wagon's dash, crackled with the dispatcher's broken voice. The call was for a disturbance far from where he was parked, so he continued hubbing a nameless tune. His right hand rested on the 45 next to him. The wind picked up and early morning holiday shoppers hunched to the snow. They pulled scarves tighter across throats and buried gloved hands deep in overcoat pockets. They hurried in and out of stores and Al wondered if his wife, Lolly, was Christmas shopping back home. He could see her walking down Buffalo's Main Street, pushing Allison bundled in the pram, as she went from store to store, LL Burger, hangers, maybe stopping at Adam, Meldrum, and Anderson's to watch mechanical L's, twirling skaters, and waltzing Victorian couples in the front window. She loved those displays, and they had been going every Christmas since high school to look at them. He was parked across from the bank in front of the gyp luncheonette. A Salvation Army Santa stood bell ringing nearby. Charity Drive 1961 was painted across his donation kettle, the words flanked by Holly sprigs. His eyes and cheeks were red and he stared at the fog windows of Flo's Turf Club on the corner. Al was certain there was nothing Santa wanted more than to walk through that door sit at the bar and drink four roses until all the crumpled dollars in his kettle were gone. He wondered if Santa had noticed the station wagon. A blue Oldsmobile pulled in front of the bank exactly at 930. Bobby got out of the driver's side, a tan raincoat slung over his arm. He pulled the brown slouch hat down on his forehead and glanced up and down the street but not at the station wagon. At the same time, Curry slipped from the passenger side. His matching tan raincoat contrasted with his dark skin and red corduroy cap. He crossed in front of the Oldsmobile and slid behind the wheel. The fake mustache Al had applied that morning with theatrical glue looked real enough, at least from across the street. The stolen Olds crept to the corner and then turned left on Utica Avenue towards the side entrance of the bank as Al knew it would. King's Highway had became a chessboard, and he studied it, seeing three moves ahead and knowing where the pieces would slide and when.
0: That's great. Thanks for that. Um, I also wanted to mention uh, how much I loved a, a scene that you did, and, and it, it makes me think that you must be a baseball fan. You do, do you like baseball?
9: I do. I watched a lot of it as a kid, um, not so much anymore just because of time, but uh, a lot of
0: yeah, well, you must. you must then know where I'm headed with this, but uh, you got this scene where you worked in listening on the stoop outside to Sandy Koufax trying to throw a no-hitter uh, while something else is going on, and, and the something else that's going on is Al's coming back uh, trying to figure out what he's going to do next because you know the, the FBI is honing in on him and everything, and these couple of guys are sitting there, and Sandy Koufax is about to throw a no-hitter, and they're questioning him and he's having to answer, but then you're working in the scenes from the last two or three innings. Um, how did that idea come to you? Because I think it's a great uh tip for writers to think about to bring a scene alive, you know, because you felt like you were sitting out there with these guys who are watching this game, one of them who is saying he's not going to be able to do it. The guy's a bomb. He can't last nine innings. The other guy says, No, he's gonna do it. He's gonna do it. But then the tension wraps up. There's a fly ball or there's a ground out. And in the meantime, they're asking him questions about where he's been and what, he, and he's thinking about things. How did that come to you? And uh, have you used that technique before?
9: You know, there's a lot going on in that scene for sure. Uh, part of the, and it goes back to research. Um, part of the research, I was in the, at the Grosvenor room of the Buffalo Central Library in downtown Buffalo, where I live. Uh, not only did I read articles that were specifically about Al and his bank robberies from back in the early 60s, but I also just read the newspapers, you know, what was going on during that year, those 11 months. And I was just reading, you know, reading the ads, seeing what prices were like, you know, the weather. Uh, I'm just reading the newspaper from, you know, 50, 60 years ago. And I was reading the sports page of one of the editions, and there it was about sandy koufax's first uh no hitter and i said well that kind of the same kind of parallel the same time period that al was you know hiding out in pennsylvania and then you know on the internet you can find anything so i googled it and there i found you know like a pitch by pitch description of that game um because it was sandy koufax's first one and i said well this would be really neat to just kind of you know it's, it's historical fiction you know bring some more of that historical elements into the at the same time have the tension of the baseball game kind of mirror the tension that ails feeling internally because he's just coming back from a bank robbery where they didn't get as much money as they wanted his whole plan's kind of going sideways trying to get his family um and he's kind of trapped with these guys on the front stoop um, so he's playing along with them, and the baseball game's coming over the transistor radio. But there's a lot going on inside Zale's head. So it was fun to write. Um, I don't think I've done it before, um, but it was certainly a, a nice thing to stumble across uh, and, and incorporate mm-hmm. in the, into the novel.
0: Oh right, well, I really love that scene because all that was going on in it. I think it's just a great example of how you can have. Uh, you know one bit of dialogue being supported by what else is going on around someone in the scene but add sort of a third element to it, another sort of uh timeline of events and and you're going to keep people interested and excited So that was well done hey a couple of writing life questions uh you actually have a connection to charlotte uh, even though you also have a connection to buffalo where the story is uh you actually came and uh i guess you did the mfa program from from queens and charlotte uh while you were living in buffalo and uh Talk about that and how that uh, uh, benefited your writing if it did.
9: Yeah. So, um, Queens was a great experience. They have a low residency MFA where you're only on campus for a couple weeks of the year. I, and I was living in Buffalo, had a a young family at the time, uh, you know, full-time day job, which I still have. So I I couldn't do a, a full residency program that was offered. And that time when I decided to apply to Queens and it was the only only school I applied for it was kind of my my last ditch effort at becoming a writer Uh, I had been writing I I thought you know I'd be like Michael Chabon and and Brett Easton Ellis and one of those guys that would get their first novel published you know before they were 30 uh, because they're just a little bit older than I am and you know my 30th birthday came and my 40th birthday came and I only had a handful of short stories to show for it and maybe two or three unpublishable novels in the drawer and decided well this isn't really working um queen's you know what they offered was a network of writers when you graduate and i thought well that that sounds that sounds like something i need and something happened at Queens. something clicked whether i had lived long enough to become a better writer whether i had worked at my craft long enough or if something about the concept of putting together a story and what story means if it if it finally clicked but something happened at queen's and starting that second my second year there i I went on a run and wrote 17 short stories and they were became part of my thesis and they were all published uh before they were put into a short story collection um, called muscle cars
0: Wow, that's great. Well, that, that's certainly, you know, you, you get mixed reviews sometimes on MFA programs. But it sounds like it worked out very well for you.
9: Yeah, you know, I, it's not everybody's path. You don't have to get an MFA to be a writer. Uh, but for whatever reason, being in that setting, that it absolutely worked for me. Um, and I, uh, you know, made lifetime friendships. And I've got a great group of writers. Um, you know, Ashley Warlick out of Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, Carla Dameron up in uh, uh, Columbia, South Carolina. Our uh, Dartinia Hall right there in Charlotte. You know, they all were at Queens and they all became, uh, you know, great supporters of myself uh, along with Beth Johnson out of Michigan. And we formed this this writer's group. So they were true to their word. I, I left with a writer's network to to bounce ideas and share stories with.
0: Yeah, that's great. And we, we've we talked about the importance of, of a writing community for writers. And that's one way to get it is to go through a, a program like that. Hey, one final question. Uh, you talked about the journey and how long it took uh, to get that debut novel. Um, as you look back, uh, I ask this of uh, authors sometimes. So what do you wish you had known uh, about uh, writing a novel uh, that had you known it to at the time, uh, it might have helped you. Uh, or maybe it's just something you learned that you didn't realize when you got started with the idea.
9: Yeah, I think what I would would say to myself um, is don't be afraid. I was afraid to write the novel. Um, and so originally, what became Rook was originally um, going to be a novella. And the novella, the first uh, was just going to be pretty much the plot of of what Rook turned out to be. Um, the second, then I said, well, no, it'll be it'll be three. It'll be a, a trilogy of novellas. And this, the middle part would be Al's life in prison. It'd be an epistolary. So it'd be, you know, all through letter exchanges with his lawyer and his ex-wife and um, Dan J. Marlowe. And then the third piece would be what turned out to be the epilogue. So I was going to write th- three novellas because I was afraid to write a novel <laughs> because I had... You know, three failed ones in the drawer, or four failed ones, and I thought, well, I can write short stories. You know, maybe, you know, maybe I have to take baby steps to get to a novel. And then, of course, at the end, I showed it to my editor, and they said, no, write the novel. Um, yeah, yeah. And so that's what I ended up doing. So I would say, you know, you know, be brave, just, just, just do it. You know, what, what's the worst that's going to happen? You have to revise what, it. What's the
0: worst that's going to happen? I've heard somebody say they can't eat ya. you. Know, that's right. Like,
9: you know, that's right.
0: So, can't eat so. well, look, uh, what's next for you, uh, Stephen?
9: Yeah, it's busy. Um, My second novel is going to come out October 3rd of 2023, so next October. Um, It's called Yesteryear. It's another historical uh, novel based in Buffalo, New York, about Franz Stryker, the man who created the Lone Ranger and the Green Hornet right here in Buffalo. And it's got a little bit different than Rook and Muscle Cars. It has elements of magical realism and uh, how, you know, the cosmos helped... Fran draker come up with the lone ranger
0: well i love that and i love how you're taking uh history and and weaving as much of the truth into the story uh, as you can i did that with my novel deadly declarations and i found it to be i wouldn't call it a crutch necessarily but i found it to be a nice way to 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 let the imagination then flow from some real events and then it's fun after the fact uh talking with people about well what was true in that and what wasn't right
9: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, just a quick story. Uh, I was doing an interview and uh, one of the uh, people in the audience actually took a creative writing class from Franz Stryker back in the the late 50s, early 60s. So it was nice to know that that there's some people still out there that recognize him and and know him and are, you know, at least that's one sale. (laughs) I got one book sold. (laughs)
0: Yeah, that's great. Well, when you when you sent me this, You know, information we're talking about in the podcast we get all kind of submissions i thought we got to have Stephen on the show to talk about the bank robber who became a best-selling writer i mean that's yeah. just too good a story to pass up
9: yeah it might not, not best-selling but he made a living yeah. out of it yeah. um yeah. and uh you know as he, he like i said he was unrepentant to the end if you hand it out if he gave you his business card and had his mugshot on it so he was uh <laughs> he was quite the character
0: all right, well, look, uh, thanks so much for being a part of Charlotte Readers Podcast.
9: Thank you so much for having me.
0: If you are an author who would like to be
2: featured on the show, check out our submission process on the contact page of com. Please understand that given the number of submissions we receive, we can't respond to every submission or feature everyone who submits, but with the Beyond 300 format, we are featuring more authors in many different ways. You might be interviewed or provide us some audio content for us to play, or participate in an author or marketing talk, or get a shout out for your publication. One way to be sure to get a mention on the show is to submit a 750 word or less blog post to our community blog on a writing or marketing topic. If it's accepted, we may have you on to discuss the content. Just go to charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the community blog for details.
0: All right, listeners, welcome back to uh, Act Two of this episode of Charlotte's Podcast, uh, where we're going to be diving into uh, writing and marketing, uh, writing a little bit. uh, And as always, we're thankful to have uh, a tip from uh, the Charlotte Center for Literary Arts. And uh, uh, so let's listen in. Uh, to this tip on revision.
10: Hi, I'm Kathy Collins, co-founder of Charlotte Lit, bringing a Charlotte Reader's Podcast 2-Minute Writing Tip. Today's tip is a revision technique that's proved invaluable in making my writing a bit more interesting and musical. Writers tend to fall into predictable diction patterns, whatever their former genre. This is especially true of sentence structure. Some of us lean toward using mostly short sentences with simple subject-verb construction. Others of us stack clause upon clause into paragraph-long, description-laden sentences. Neither type of construction is wrong. In fact, we need both, as well as sentences and links and varieties between these two extremes. Variety contributes to a rhythm that keeps the reader's ears engaged in the narrative. When we fail to mix things up, we risk losing reader interest. Here's a simple trick for examining your own tendencies. Take out something you're working on and copy and paste a paragraph or two onto a new Word document. Then separate those sentences by hitting the return key a couple of times at the end of each. If you're like me, you might be surprised to see that your new page is filled with a series of sentences all about the same length. Now that you've seen what was hidden within the paragraphs, you can do something about it. If you tend to write long, complex sentences, find several that could benefit from division. A long sentence followed by one or two short declarative sentences creates a pleasing rhythm. Bonus points if you can turn one of those statements into a question. Likewise, if you tend to write short, find several that might work together to form a longer, more complex sentence. Better yet, try to expand some of the shorter lines, adding sensory-rich detail, metaphor, or asides. The details should matter, of course. They need to enrich your writing, not clutter it. Where a short declarative sentence works best, leave it alone. While you're intensely investigating things, take a look at the way you use adjectives. If you're a writer who leans on them for description, consider eliminating a few and find other ways to add detail. Have fun with this one, and if you'd like more such tips and writing prompts, visit us at charlottelit.org, where you'll find information about writing classes, special events, and a link to our free weekly prompt-based writing group, Pen to Paper.
0: Well, there's a lot packed into that. Uh, Let's let's talk a little bit about what we just heard uh, Kathy Collins say.
2: Yeah, I think that's a great idea because the the sentence length and structure that you use really is a major hallmark of a writer's style and the style of a piece. Um, but I think it's something that you might not consciously think about. So I, I'm sure we probably all have certain patterns and habits that we normally fall into with that that you might not even be aware about. So that idea of breaking it out and actually looking consciously at the length of your sentences and trying to vary it up, I think is really important.
3: I think that's something that's hard to do really when you're just kind of trying to get it all out there. Like, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what I'm talking about a couple weeks ago about the goldfinch or Donna (laughs) Tart's, like information, how she writes and everything, you know, it's part of that was just like the sentence length is a lot for me sometimes Um, just as more of a reader than a writer really, I think. So it's kind of an interesting idea to say like, okay, well, if you're actually looking at the page and you're writing all of this down, what could be broken apart? What could be put back together? Just how do you make it more um, or just flow better together? Uh, So I think that's definitely good advice.
0: Yeah, and and I love how they pack so much information into these two-minute tips. I'm really enjoying uh, this. I mean, as I'm making a list here, you know, you've got long sentences to to short sentences, short sentences to long sentences, figuring out a rhythm, uh, and I like the fact that, uh, don't forget, this is really important in, in writing mysteries, don't forget about the questions. If you've got a detective novel, or you're writing in war, you're doing something like I wrote, Daily Decorations, uh, you know, ask a lot of questions. You know, when you ask those questions, the reader is trying to answer them in their own head and maybe they don't have the answer and that's a good thing, mm-hmm. right? Maybe they've got a thought or two about what's gonna happen, but it shows some insight into the character's mind if the character's uh, questioning certain things and it gives the reader something to jump off to. And then I like how uh, she talks about uh, the sensory details, um, you know, working those into the sentences and looking for things other than adjectives. And that might be something like dialogue or it might be something like setting or something that uh, adds a little bit uh, in the variety. Uh, speak to the variety for a minute because variety can come in all kinds of forms. It can come in structure. It can come in the way you write your prose, it can come in voice.
2: Yeah, and I think it's so important just to keeping a reader's attention. You know, it's something you might not really think about, but if your sentences, whether in length or in structure, are monotonous, then you can be writing something that's really exciting story-wise, but you're probably gonna lose your reader. So just thinking about how on that kind of granular level you can mix that up and introduce that variety, I think just makes things flow and makes them read more quickly.
3: It reminds me kind of, of music in a way, just like mm-hmm. the conversation itself, just like the rhythm and um, how, you know, you could have these beautiful lyrics, but if it doesn't flow well, then you're not going to listen to the song. Um, I think it has a huge impact on just how it makes the reader feel, just the way the sentences roll and that kind of thing. Do you guys feel like just as readers, do you connect more with shorter, kind of quippier sentences or do you prefer a lot of detail
2: For me, I I mean, it it really depends on the writer. Like I think Mm -hmm. the shorter sentences are easier to get through. So I'm more likely to just kind of breeze through something that's written in that way. But there are writers I love who write long and complex sentences. But I think if you're doing that, you have to be able to pull it off, you know, like you have to be able to make it still interesting and, and make the sentences still flow easily. So that you're not having to stop and think about like, wait, how do I parse this? What's going on? You know, you want it to be effortless, even if it's a longer sentence.
0: Yeah, me personally, I'm drawn to more white space on the page and more declarative, you know, shorter sentences and a lot of dialogue. <clears throat> but uh, that's the the thriller, you know, kind of book that you think mm-hmm. about. Um, um, I, I like long sentences unless they're filled with eighteen different descriptions of <clears throat> of the uh, flora and fauna along the path. You know? <laughs> and I, that remind. And as I think about that, and as I think about writing, it's like uh, who was it that said, uh, you know, leave out the parts that readers skip you know yeah so yeah it, it, it's like sometimes a long sentence is the part that readers skip because they're trying to figure out what's going to happen to the protagonist who's hanging by their fingernails <laughs> on this uh 12th story <laughs> building not to hear about <laughs> the building <laughs> yeah they don't need to know that, you know uh, what uh, architectural style the building yeah. is uh, and and a history lesson about that while you're trying to find out if these if they're going to fall to their death or something but uh yeah, so so really good uh, tips there and uh, uh, which uh, is going to feed us into um, a topic that we have uh, from one of our guest bloggers and, and listen, <clears throat> listeners and who writers just you know, just know that uh, if you write for our community blog, not only are you' going to provide some nice content for the website, but you're going to get uh, mentioned on the podcast. sometimes we're going to have you uh, even read, which is uh, what uh, our next uh, guest is going to do. but uh, this feeds into, Uh, the next discussion because the topic of this community blog post is ideas for the aspiring author. Uh, How do I write a book? So uh, Sarah, you're going to introduce our blogger, our writer blogger.
2: Yeah, we've got a great post um, up on our website that we're going to talk about from Brian Langhoff Um, Brian has been writing professionally for over 30 years. He's been technical writing for several Fortune 500 companies, as well as various trade and special interest publications. He has a great passion for storytelling and has used his creativity to produce poems, skits, plays, short stories, essays, motivational presentations. And most recently, he has released his novel Coco's Beckons, The Curse of (laughs) Yemaya, Y e m a. Y-A. I might be pronouncing that wrong, and he is working on the sequel, Return to Cocos, The Reawakening, as well as a psychological thriller, Dreams of Ambrosia, and a children's ed- educational book series, The Fantastical Adventures of Denver Sneaks. That's a great name. Yeah. So clearly he's someone who um, has written a little bit of everything, so I'm interested to hear what he has to say.
0: Yeah, all right. well, let's, uh, let's uh, hear it in his own words right now.
7: My blog post is Ideas for Aspiring Authors. I am often asked by other aspiring authors, how do you write a book? My answer to that is simple. You write it in a way that works for you. There are no rules for how long it should take or the path you must follow to get to completion. Once you find inspiration, it is a good idea to create a treatment for your story. The treatment contains all your ideas, key elements, character profiles, names, plot devices, twists, what have you. The treatment is your living reference as you write the story it should evolve with every new thought or idea that is added you can even keep pictures of characters and important elements to help in the descriptive process next you must begin your story begin with the first or strongest thoughts or ideas you have about the story you want to tell it doesn't matter if it's the beginning middle or end of the story start Somewhere, So you can feel the accomplishment of completing the initial milestone of getting your first words and thoughts onto the written page. This will help you establish a flow of your writing while developing your your unique style of storytelling and setting the tone and tempo of your work. Feel free to change things up in the beginning as you develop your story. Find out what works, and as you edit your first paragraphs and write the additional content, you can make it consistent, As you make your changes. Don't get bogged down or consumed in being perfect. Or hold to your initial intent for your story. You may start with one mindset to guide you on your process. But by the end of writing and editing. Your novel may become something completely different. If it works, let it happen. The story will tell itself as it wants to be told. You are just the vessel that transfers the images of your mind's eye to the written word. Don't fight your story. Once you have filled in the gaps and your first revision is done, remember that your first revision is not the completed story and it will be rough. While you're writing and conducting multiple run-throughs to edit your story, it will evolve many times throughout the process as you make changes to the content and structure before it is ever ready to go to be published. Be open to the natural change as changes as ideas continue to flow. Don't force the the story or the reader will notice. If you get tired of writing and find yourself putting down words for the sake of fulfilling some arbitrary goal you have set for yourself, take a break. You may need a few minutes to a few weeks to get your mind straight. Take as much time as you need, but don't give up. Let things flow and evolve naturally, and you'll have the greatest success in satisfying your readers. Be open to using a good editor and proofreader to provide feedback and make the necessary corrections that will make your novel even better. They are a great resource for ensuring your story is the best it can be. Even the greatest authors use these resources because there's value in a fresh set of eyes. They are your last chance to ensure your novel is everything it can be and to ensure it will be engaging to your readers. Finally, be sure you have a clean and easy to read layout with a nice and adequate sized serif font that will make it easier for your reader to enjoy the experience. But first you have to get them interested. Spend time and money to have a professional cover created. A strong cover with a good synopsis on the back will stand out on the shelf and it is your first chance to make an impression on your prospective readers. I hope this helps you. Um, I was once told, Everyone has a story inside of them. The brave ones are those that share it with others. I hope you will take my advice, find that story in your heart, put it to paper, and share it with others. Happy writing. Let's meet in the next big adventure.
0: Uh, don't y'all just want to run out and start writing right now? <laughs> That's <was> very inspiring. <laughs> it's a great
7: reading voice, too. I really enjoyed
2: yeah.
3: his, like the way he did that. I also want to just give him a hug he's like a nice
0: person yeah now there's a lot a lot of great information there i think he um really summarized well a lot of the aspects of uh writing and publishing a book so let's do some thoughts here on uh, on what we heard
2: um well one of the things that jumped out at me was how he talks about you don't have to start at the beginning just when you're ready to write just jump in wherever you feel you have the strongest idea of the story and what you're excited to write about um, even if it's not you know page one of the story i think that's really crucial just because sometimes getting over that hump from like you have the idea and you're doing whatever prep work it is you're doing to actually the real writing and you're actually putting those words down on the page can be really intimidating and you it's difficult at first to to sort of get your feet wet in the story and to figure out the voice of the characters and the narrative voice and all of that. So I think that idea of just jumping in where you feel the most ready to do that, just to get yourself over that obstacle. And then once you're in sort of the flow, the story is easier to write other scenes. That's really helpful. So if the the beginning feels like it's still a little bit shaky to you, just jump in where you're ready to write and the rest will come more easily.
3: I feel like that takes some pressure off too, because it's like you sort of are able to just like And that kind of goes back to his idea, too, of just staying true to the story that you want to write. Like, if if you have a specific scene or part of the story or book that you really feel like is calling to you, it's a lot easier to just let that flow out. Um, I love also that he said, don't fight your story, because I think, I guess, my dog, Fiona, agrees with that. Uh, (laughs) But she... (laughs) Now she's distracting me. Um, uh, he, but I think that's a really like clever thing to say. Just don't fight the story that you're trying to write because a lot of the, I think as a writer and if you like a person, you know, if you're writing your story, there's a lot of like, I should be doing that, that word should like, this is how I should be writing this, or this is the story I should tell, um, versus the story that you have inside of you. Uh, cause, and I think we probably, I think we talked about this a couple weeks ago too, just like, are you writing for yourself or are you writing for the reader? Like how do you how do you kind of make that decision? And I think what he's saying is like you write for yourself and you write the story that's in you. And um, if you kind of give up that fight, it probably makes the story just come a lot easier to you, which I really, I like that a lot.
2: Yeah, and, and he was also kind of talking about the idea of like, don't fight the story for what it wants to be almost. Like yeah. it's going to change as you go along. So even if you had one initial idea about it, you have to be kind of flexible and, and let the story evolve into what it needs to be
3: right
0: but those are <clears throat> those are great points um you know getting into a flow um i like not setting arbitrary goals and uh, that you're sort of the vessel for your story mm-hmm. which is interesting a lot of authors think well i am the story i'm i'm the creator i'm the yeah. king or the queen that brought this thing to life but the magic of writing sometimes is uh is, is not, not, that's not the case. I mean, you're, you're, you're kind of a vessel for this uh, subconscious thing that happens when you sit down uh, and and go to work. But, uh, uh, and, you know, this idea of using pictures, um, if, you know, you're a very visual person and that helps you in terms of uh, communicating certain things about your story is nice. Um, But, um, you know, in this kind of, Ties and some other things, when, you know, being open, that is opening yourself to the fact that uh, after you've gotten that story out, that you need to get some feedback, get a good editor. And uh, mm-hmm. we talked about editing before, but that's going to make your story even better.
2: Yeah, I think that idea of being a vessel is funny too. Like I have writer friends who will talk about it like, I just have these people in my head who are talking <laughs> and they won't shut up, so I have to write them down.
3: <laughs>
2: it's like sometimes I it feels that. like it's not even you. <laughs>
3: That's like what Big Magic by Liz Gilbert is all about. I feel like it's just how it's something that kind of visits you, like creativity just comes mm-hmm. to you. but um, I love that idea. I think it's a very whimsical, interesting concept that really fits well with just like being a writer, I think. Just like you have these characters that just like live in your brain and then they leave when they want to. You know, they, you don't really get yeah. to decide like, okay, I'm done with you now. They're like, no, we'll, we'll figure that out for you. <laughs>
2: yeah, I think there's almost this weird push and pull in writing between, I guess, like receptivity and intentionality. Mm-hmm. Like you have to receive creative, creative ideas and creative energy, which you can't force. You know, ideas just come to you and nobody, none of us really know where they come from. But you also have to actually put the work in and try to get that stuff out on the page. Like, if I only wrote when I was really feeling inspired, I would never actually finish any projects. So, you have to figure out how to take that sort of amorphous creative energy and turn it into something concrete. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think, uh, of course, you know, when you're doing your writing your first book, you're all energized, you're ready to get going, you're going to write and write and write. Uh, this is really good advice, too, for the person who's writing their second, third, or fourth book. And that is, um, you know just sit down sometimes and don't think of it as a daunting overall project because you know how it works and you know how long it took and you know how many drafts you had just sit down and write and kind of get in the flow uh, and, and you know part of what he says is don't fight the story but also don't fight the process either you know and I, this is a lesson I have to learn as well you know Um, I want to get it all done. I want to get things, you know, I'm doing all these different things. I I want want to write this. I want to write that. But sometimes you just have to take it in in bits and pieces, right, and just sit down and just commit to to writing a little bit and see where it takes Mm
2: -hmm. you. Yeah, and and take breaks too, I think, is one thing that he mentioned. Like sometimes you might have to step away from a story for a little bit and um, just wait until you feel like you're in a better place to write it and then come back. But I think if you do that, at least for me personally, I I try to always have – other projects I can step into in the meantime so that I'm still kind of creating. <laughs> I don't want it to just stop. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. And, you know, he also mentioned some uh, practical aspects of the, you know, how to publish a novel as well. And that is eventually you're going to have to have a book cover and you're going to have to have a synopsis. And after you've written that novel, this 90,000 words, uh, writing a synopsis is going to be one of the hardest yeah. things mm-hmm. that you do. <laughs>
3: wrap it all up in a pretty
2: bow <laughs> yeah exactly
0: <laughs> and that's why you hire people like Hannah to help you know pull out the ingredients and, and help promote exactly. you, you we're only going to promote the, you, you have one line to promote this book Landis give me a line give me a line give, you know give me a give me a something buzzy you know, so that we can how
3: awesome I am yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just
0: kidding, kinda. exactly exactly uh, well good stuff well on that note uh, just a quick word
2: We have a newsletter called Beyond 300, and we'd love to have you sign up. This is where we share what's coming on the podcast, provide helpful links, and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts. You can sign up at charlottereaderspodcast.com or the websites of the hosts, landiswave.com, saraharcherwrites.com, or spellboundpublicrelations.com. And by the way, we won't spam you because that takes way too much time.
0: All right, well, we're, uh, we're still in act two with our uh, writing and creativity part of the show. we got some great uh, author segments coming up as well, but uh, we've got another uh, author who's a blogger who um, has uh, got a really interesting topic uh, uh, that I think we're going to enjoy talking about. Hannah, why don't you give us the topic and also tell us about Yeah, we've got
3: a great post. I really enjoyed this one from Tracy Buchanan called The Most Powerful Tool in a Writer's Arsenal, Perseverance. Um, Tracy crashed into the literary world when she was six and won her first writing award, which, says so she got started very young. <laughs> Fast forward through the years as a journalist, mom, volunteer, freelance writer, editor, artist, and circus performer. Um, not really, but that would be something, wouldn't it? <laughs> Um, So also has a good sense of humor. And you'll find her happily planted in the world of fiction with her debut novel, Toward the Corner of Mercy and Peace, um, published by Regal House Publishing in June, next year, June 2023. She and her husband live in the UNESCO creative city of Paducah, Kentucky. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong also. (laughs) They have two married sons and seven amazing grandkids. and You can find her a uh, blog on her website at tracybuchanan.com.
0: All right, well, let's listen into this uh, advice uh, you've heard how to write a novel from Brian. Now you're going to hear what it uh, it really takes uh, to get into the writing world. Here,
1: join me now to discover the most powerful tool in a writer's arsenal. J.K. Rowling's, Thomas Edison, Walt Disney, and Colonel Sanders all failed repeatedly and by some standards, miserably. You've heard their stories. Rowling's writing was deemed too conventional, too long, too weird, and too old-fashioned. Thomas Edison was considered unintelligent by his teachers. Walt Disney was fired from his newspaper job because he lacked creativity. Colonel Sanders didn't achieve success with Kentucky Fried Chicken until he was in his 60s. These success stories have a common theme. Was it good luck? Being in the right place at the right time that propelled them into achieving their dreams? Was it tremendous talent? Did they know the right people? Well, maybe a dash of those elements was present, but I would contend these people would not inspire us if not for one crucial trait that each of them had, perseverance. I think it's the most powerful tool anyone who wants to see their dream come to fruition has. And fortunately it's available to everyone. You don't have to have money, connections, extraordinary talent, or luck to develop it. The good news is that every one of us can persevere. It's not a trait exclusive to certain sex, race, nationality, appearance, or age. The bad news is that developing it can hurt. Along the way to achieving your dream, you're probably going to hear the thud of the answer no land like a hammer to your hope more than once. Some of us lean toward perseverance because of our innate personalities. Parents, teachers, friends, and spouses might have even labeled us as stubborn and not in a, hey, I admire your tenacity sort of way. Some of us are so single-minded, it gets in the way of our success. There is a time to cut your losses and move on to a new project. Perseverance is different from stubbornness. Stubborn people are determined not to change their attitudes or position on something, even when a good argument is made to do so. Persevering people, on the other hand, continue in a course of action despite difficulty or delay in achieving success. Let's think about who we are at our core. Writers are usually sensitive people, meaning we feel things deeply and notice what others overlook. That makes us vulnerable to feeling pain when difficulties and delays inevitably come our way. Our temptation is to avoid those feelings, and one way to avoid them is to quit. We stop feeling the pain of rejection because we don't submit. We stop feeling the hurt of criticism because we stop producing. And let's face it, those of us with the toughest of skins still have a twinge of disappointment when we're told no. So how can we writers develop our perseverance muscles? Fortunately, I'm an expert in perseverance. So it's your lucky day. I've been a writer most of my life. I'm 62 and like everyone I've endured no thank yous and maybe worse, complete silence regarding my writing. I wrote anyway, I got tougher, stronger, better. You can too. Here are three ways you can increase your ability to persevere. Number 1. Learn from setbacks. Accept that rejection is part of the writer's life and use every no as a navigating tool. A pattern of rejections may mean your piece isn't ready. Ask yourself and others how your writing could be improved and don't resist criticism. Consider rejections setbacks, not roadblocks. And really, they aren't even setbacks because you eliminate something each time. As our friend Edison said, I have not failed 10,000 times. I've successfully found 10,000 ways that will not work. Number two, remember your reasons. I write because it's my passion. I love it when the words come fast and furiously. I also love it when i must slow down to let ideas simmer. But writing's not only my passion, it's meaningful to me. Reflect on why you're writing and evaluate the purpose of your work. Passion coupled with purpose is unstoppable. Number three, enjoy the process. The fact is you're not going to persevere if you're miserable. Reframe negative thoughts and evaluate why you don't enjoy a part of the process. Reward yourself when you do something you don't especially want to do. Chocolate can make you love almost anything, just saying. So, writer, can you relate? Are you too weird, not smart enough, lacking talent, or too old? And are you ready to prove the critics wrong? Don't give up. That's step one.
0: All right. right. Can you relate, uh, co hosts of Charlotte Reader's podcast? (laughs) Oh,
2: yes, for sure. (laughs) I mean, what writer can't? You know, every writer faces rejection, I think.
3: I love that she used uh, Colonel Sanders. (laughs) <laughs> the fried mm-hmm. chicken <laughs> guy <laughs> as an example in this, like as an avid eater of fried chicken, I'm like, I I didn't know that he didn't get into it until the 60s, actually. So she also yeah. had a lot of great quotes in there, too. I loved the Edison quote about, you know, you, you didn't fail 10,000 times. He figured out different ways it didn't work 10,000 times, you know, just kind of mm-hmm. altering your perspective on some of the harder parts of writing, I think, is really crucial to kind of moving forward.
0: Yeah, I found this, uh, you know, very uh, inspirational to listen to. Um, it's another kind of pep talk, like like Brian gave us as well as writers, uh, because when you get into this insular world of writing, sometimes you're sort of all by yourself until you finally have something come out, and you either get uh, good nods about it or uh, bad nods about it or whatever. But um, you know, writing can be lonely. So this idea that uh, you're all you, Writers sometimes second guess themselves, and when they get that uh, feedback that's uh, negative, um, it does take flexing those perseverance muscles. I just um, I, I love those thoughts. Uh, what What did y'all What did y'all think about uh, the the three tips? Uh, learn from your setbacks and use the word no as a roadblock mm. as, as a map.
2: Yeah, I think that idea of like. Um, one thing she brought up in her tips was to to learn from, you know, the setbacks that you face and to take those on and, and look for anything constructive you can get out of them. Um, and she also drew a distinction between perseverance and stubbornness, which I think is really useful because you do have to persevere as a writer and you're going to face rejection, whether it's people, you know, outright rejecting your work and not wanting to publish it or bad reviews or critical feedback or whatever it is, um, and you have to be able to persevere through that. But then you also don't want to be on the other end of the spectrum and just think like, I'm a genius and everything I do is perfect. And <laughs> I, I shouldn't change, you know, you have to, you have to also continuously work to improve your writing and, and take on constructive feedback and um, try to figure out if you do have some sort of rejection or, or setback, like, is there something you can learn from it? And in practice, I think that is really difficult to do. Sometimes it can be hard to to know like is it just okay this is one person's subjective opinion and i shouldn't really set too much store by it or is there actually something valuable that i can take out of this to improve my writing um so i know that that's something at least for me i'm always kind of trying to navigate it's like how do i how do i differentiate between the two and how do i find like when i can actually learn a valuable lesson Um, but i think it's good to try to balance a little bit of both of those perspectives
3: Yeah, I agree with that. And I think it is tough, because you you want to stay true. It's kind of like Brian was saying in his post, just stay true to the story that's inside of you. And if that's what you've written, and you feel like that's sort of, you know, that's, you've, you've done that, but you're still not getting the feedback or the um, reviews or whatever it might be that you were looking for, it's kind of hard to kind of decipher, like, okay, well, is this is this really working for me or how do I change this to make it better or whatever it might be. But, um, I think all feedback, if you, and again, I guess going back to perspective is just, if you look at it as something that can help you, um, even if it's just a little bit, like you don't have to take all of it to heart or anything like that, but just kind of like going through the actual feedback or the review or, um, whatever your editor is telling you and saying, well, there's probably some truth to this, um, you know, I think it, it really can only make it better.
0: Yeah, and there are really two aspects to what she's saying, at least that I see. One is uh, using perseverance and getting the job done, getting the work done that needs to be done to get that story out. And then there's perseverance. Uh, it's almost, if you think about it, it's, it's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, the, the beats in a novel. Your, your, your hero is going to have certain setbacks, right? And if they don't have perseverance, uh, it's going to be a pretty short book. Right, that's true. (laughs) I mean, mean, you know, if they don't if they don't overcome those obstacles that are placed in their way, they're they're not going to you know succeed. They're not going to you know have that uh, happy ending if that's what the novel is going to be. Mm -hmm. Same thing in a writer's life. Um, You know, it's going to take that perseverance. I love this quote. You don't need to be talented. You don't need to have luck. You just need to have perseverance when it comes to getting the job. Done, and then as the job is getting done, or as the job is complete in your mind, and people start telling you certain things about it, you've got to overcome that obstacle in your head, which says you're no good, or you, or the one that says, ignore them. I know better than they do. You know what this should look like, um, but but be open to feedback. And uh, so perseverance has a lot of different uh, animals there. And I'd just like you to comment on the her. Second and third pieces here to remember. Uh, maybe you're not the most persevering kind of person, or maybe you're having those setbacks, and maybe the the storyline isn't looking too good for you in your own novel writing novel journey. And yet, she says, "What are the reasons why you're writing? You mm-hmm. know, that's really important to think about, is it not?
2: Yeah, and I think that also kind of ties into the idea of like, how do you differentiate between, um you know, what's just rejection that you don't really need to worry about too much versus what can you actually maybe take constructive advice from is it helps to, to start out by having a strong sense of who you are as a writer, what your voice is, what your ideas are, what the work is you actually want to put out into the world. And you can use that as your filter to say like, okay, is this, is there something about this feedback or this rejection that I can use to create a stronger version of what I Already want to do and what I'm trying to do, or is it just that this person has different tastes for me and and they're just not my reader, you know? Um, So I think that can be sort of a good filtering mechanism if you have that strong sense of purpose as a writer and sense of who you are and what you do well.
3: I really like that, and I think that ties into a lot of different conversations we really could have just about being a writer, or really whatever you do. And I I love the fact that she also had like Thomas Edison and. Like, again, Colonel Sanders, all of these people Mm -hmm. who, not necessarily writers, but everybody kind of struggles with that, Um, you know, the concept of, oh, I got to keep moving, even though I'm, you know, getting all of this rejection or I'm getting criticism. And, I mean, like the imposter syndrome aspect of it, I think, and that's kind of like, you know, where, where you have to sit there and say, well, why do I do this? And I think anyone can say that they have moments like that, no matter what your job is or what you're doing. You're just like, am I really qualified (laughs) for this? Mm -hmm. Like, why, you know, I'm getting, whether it's a bad day or whatever it might be, but really just kind of, like you were saying, Sarah, just having a a good sense of who you are, um, both, you know, professionally or like as a whatever it might be of what you're trying to say, I think it's really important. So it might just be that that's a daily practice. That's like something that, um, like as she was reading from her post, just I'm thinking, okay, well, how... How can you kind of incorporate that idea into your daily life where you're just actively mm-hmm. thinking let's keep moving forward this is how like acknowledging how you're feeling i'm feeling a certain way but let's keep moving anyway because this is what i love to do so it's it's an interesting idea
0: yeah another name she dropped was jk rowling and, and think about this if uh i mean nobody wanted to uh, any books that involved uh, magical characters uh, in castles and mm-hmm. things. And had she not right. persevered, we wouldn't have the right. wonderful, you know, Harry Potter series. She wanted to write that and she felt like there was a place for it. And uh, so she persevered and uh, and her voice came through in that regard. So, you know, find what you enjoy writing, enjoy that uh, process. Yeah, There's great stuff so far um, today. And uh, we're going to, have a quick message we're going to come back with some author features
2: for all things charlotte readers podcast check out charlotte you can find a list of all episodes an alphabetical guest list with links detailed show notes for each episode a community blog and more we'd love to have you visit
0: All right, listeners, we're back, uh, with act three of, uh, today's episode of Charler's podcast. We've got, uh, some, some great author features in this act. Uh, uh, we've got, uh, Malika Steveley, and, uh, we've, we've also got, uh, uh, an interview with, uh, that Hannah did with, uh, Patty Meredith, and we're going to introduce those authors and, uh, play, play some pieces from those, uh, two interviews. We'll start with, uh, uh, Malika. Uh, Sarah, why don't you tell us about Malika, since uh, you read this book, and uh, we'll work into some of what's going on with her.
2: Yeah, sure. So we've got a great historical fiction novel here today, A uh, Song of Redemption by Malika Steveley. Um Malika writes historical fiction, African American, and women's literature and essays. She graduated from Cal State University Fullerton, where she earned dual degrees in English and comparative literature and communications. Um, As a former newspaper reporter, she's published an array of articles and interviews with icons such as Dr. Maya Angelou. She's a member of the Historical Novel Society and the Women's National Book Association, which is an association that I'm also in. They have a great um, chapter here in Charlotte. She holds an office position with multiple organizations that promote steward leadership, and she lives in North Carolina with her husband and children with whom she enjoys singing show tunes at the top of her lungs, (laughs) and Song of Redemption is her debut novel, Um, A little bit of background about the book, in 1932, a media frenzy ensues when the remains of Danielle, a gifted enslaved songstress, are discovered in the wall of an abandoned mansion on the Swallow Plantation. Reporters learn the nature of Danielle's life on and off the Creole Sugar Plantation as a rented slave and former child companion of the master's daughter. Uh, Danielle is known for her proficiency in herbal remedies, her beauty, and her likeness on the Swallow, and some's rum and sugar product art. She's flawed yet favored by her lascivious master, Dimitri Swallow, and despised by his wife, Etienneette. She catches the tender eye of a free mariner and business owner, Alphonse Santee, who is instrumental in her thirst for freedom, love, and the struggle to mend her broken family, torn apart by turmoil and Dimitri. Inspired by true events, Song of Redemption is filled with the rich culture of multi-parishes west of the Mississippi River. It artfully pries open a window to aspects of pre-Civil War life for communities of color that are rarely discussed in detail. This unique blend of suspense, romance, and family invites readers into an unforgettable journey of the past. Um, And it's a really, really interesting book, really gripping true story. And um, she did some really interesting research into it as well. I asked Malika, what drew you to Danielle's story and to her as a character? How did you approach combining research with your own intuition and invention to get inside the head of a
8: historical figure? What drew me to Danielle's story, in addition to its being inspired by true events were her circumstances and the choices that she was forced to make to be enslaved yet favored by some of the Creole members of the family for which she worked and using that to her advantage to keep her own family together while being pregnant could weigh a lot on a 17 year old girl, a girl who had absolutely no rights and had no voice. And generally speaking, my inspiration for writing Song of Redemption came from two places. One, the 1786 slave badge that I have in my possession that bears no name or story about the child, the man or the woman whose neck it dangled from. And two, the real life construction workers who discovered Danielle's body in the wall, and when they passed away, the story would have died with them had I not learned about it. And so I felt as though I had a responsibility to speak Danielle's name, to share her story, and to finally give her a voice. I combined research with my intuition to get inside the minds of the historical figures in the book by revisiting various parts of Louisiana especially the areas where some of my enslaved ancestors were born. And I look to their experiences and their dilemmas. And I also incorporated skills and practices that have been a constant theme in in my own family to this day, such as uh, music and holistic remedies and healthcare and horticulture. So, in addition to the historical documents that I searched, I also researched legislation as it relates to um, men and women and slaves and uh, free Blacks at that time. And what I discovered was simply mind-blowing.
0: Yeah, what's blowing my mind, Sarah? What's this about uh, discovering a body in a wall?
2: Yeah, well, you'll have to read the the beginning of the book to get that <laughs> full story. But it's a really amazing true story. I guess um, some construction workers found Danielle's body in the wall of a building. And I believe um, Malika either talked to one of those construction workers or to, some, to one of their family members or something like that. And that was how she found out the story of Danielle. Um, so I think it's a really fascinating kind of story about this story in terms of how she actually came to know about Danielle and decides to write this. I guess we've talked some in this episode about creativity and like where do ideas come from? Um, and this was a case where she has some really strong personal connections to this idea. I think her, some of her um, family ancestry is in that kind of Creole culture and part of the country. And she has this tangible um, object of like the, the slave badge that she has in her possession and the actual connection to Danielle's story. And so that seems like that must've been such a powerful motivation to, to research this woman and write and kind of imagine who she really was. So um, I thought that background was really fascinating.
0: All right, we're gonna hear a little reading and then you've got another uh, question you asked her uh, uh, related to uh, process. So uh, let's, let's hear a little reading from, uh, from the book uh, Song of, of Redemption.
8: In the excerpt that I will read for you today, It's actually a flashback and it's one of many that are throughout the book from our protagonist, Danielle. It serves as an introduction to the enormous disagreement between Danielle and her father, which later on we learn becomes a driving force for Danielle within the novel. Here we learn of her struggle to accept her heritage and her unfortunate position as an enslaved teenager and companion of the master's daughter, Simone. As much as she fought to proceed with life without thinking of her father, Danielle could not help missing him. At times, she could still hear his laughter above the group of lively spectators whom he attracted in front of his cabin when defeating another challenger in an arm wrestling match. Before every tournament, he required a kiss from his daughter, Danielle, which, he depended on to give him good luck. For a while, Danielle never believed that her kisses were valuable, but thought twice when her father remained undefeated and collected food, clothing, and other goods in place of money. His absence hurt her deeper than she had ever cared to admit. To her knowledge, he had not passed on, but it felt as if he had she could still remember how his dark eyes seemed to pierce through the depths of her soul whenever his twinkling gaze locked her into complete submission. He always knew her truth, even if she attempted to cover it up with a carefully woven cape of lies. Often, she wondered if her father had the gift of foresight, for he always knew her whereabouts, sometimes her thoughts. With a sly grin, His explanation to an accusation of such phenomenon was, (laughs) Danielle, you are of my blood and our hearts are almost one and the same. His voice was forever etched into her mind. Though her mother's voice was as smooth as satin and her French was as lovely to hear as the trickling of water in a spring. To Danielle, her father's voice reflected the sound of bondage. Somehow, his African and Indian ancestry of the Caribbean coiled twice around his vocals, projecting thick and unyielding coarseness in his voice, as damaging to the ears as a prickly needle on a cactus would be to a human's touch. She clearly remembered how well he worked on the landscape and gardening around the mansion, close enough to keep an eye on his teenage daughter, whom, Many of the male slaves asked to marry, but were turned down by her protector. Once Danielle was invited to participate in a game of cricket and cards in the garden with Simone and a few of her closest friends. And for a brief moment, she was simply Danielle. She was colorless, roleless, neither rich, nor poor, nor slave, nor free, but a girl enjoying the day but when the tough sound of words sung by a deep voice was heard nearby, reminders of who and what she was in comparison to the elegant, creamy complexioned girls around her who cringed at the harsh sound engulfed her mind. Danielle felt as if fire had shot through her veins and made its way to her heart.
0: That's really powerful. Um, Sounds like, a, I mean, there's an, an engaging voice there.
2: Yeah, for sure. And it's such a powerful story. And the strength of those family connections and the meaning of them, I think, is something that comes through really strongly in the book, too. Um, so I, I really enjoyed and connected with that part of the story as well. Um, And I also was curious to to talk to Malika about kind of her process with writing historical fiction. Um, So another thing I asked her was, what did you take into consideration in writing historical fiction for a modern audience? What sorts of choices did you make as far as language, making the story relatable for modern readers, etc.?
8: Writing historical fiction for a modern audience is always tricky. I definitely wanted to acknowledge that while the book is pre and post civil war we as Americans and as an American society have made steps toward improvement definitely however there's still residue from our nation's past that has crawled its way into the present so whether it's women's rights or racism it's it still remains therefore the book illustrates a few things that are occurring. And they're occurring now as a result of what happened then. And it's also a reminder that history repeats itself. But it doesn't have to. In terms of the language, I made sure to add a disclosure in the author's notes, because you know, I wanted it, I wanted the book to be authentic to the time period. And so, the words and the terminology and ideals were extremely harsh. And, you know, that's just the reality of it. Like society, I mean, I believe that language evolves and it tells a story and it tells us who we are and where we've been. One of my goals when writing Song of Redemption was to remain true to the time period without sweetening it up to avoid leaving a bad taste in people's mouths. The characters were created to be products of their environment. Therefore, certain terms that are used within the book are intended to reveal to audiences their true disposition. Overall, if the language makes others uncomfortable, which it makes me, then that is a testament of how far we have come in our society.
0: Yeah, speak to that, Sarah, um, because you read the book. Um, mm-hmm. ha- the language, I'm I'm assuming, was uh, as she says, genuine to the time, but probably harsher in our ears today.
2: Yeah, which I think you know that's a choice that every writer has to make for their own story. Um, I think she used it effectively to um, create a powerful story that feels real. I think with any sort of historical fiction, it's it's interesting because you have I guess three different sort of layers to it. There's the time and place in which it's set, the time and place in which the writer is working, and then the time and place in which the reader lives who's reading it. Um, and so they're all going to bring kind of different perspectives and different assumptions to bear on the story. And, you know, that's something that you have to be sort of sensitive to as a writer, but also I think. It, adds interesting layers to historical fiction Um, and I'm sure that we read Danielle's story differently today than people would have 50 years ago or 100 years ago Um, so yeah I just think it's always interesting to hear from writers like how they approach those questions when they're writing something historical
0: all right next up uh, we've got uh, Patty Meredith South of Heaven but uh, just just a quick word
2: Charlotte Reader's Podcast is on social media, and we'd love to have you follow and engage with us. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Charlotte Reader's Podcast. Check us out.
3: So, yeah, we have Patty Meredith up next, and I loved talking with her. She's such a fun and vibrant person, and you can definitely kind of feel that in her writing. Um, we talked about her new Southern fiction novel called South of Heaven. Patty's stories have appeared in the Appalachian Heritage, um, the Mulkberry Fork Review. She has a MFA in creative writing from the University of Memphis and has also studied at Hindman Settlement School Table Rock Writers Conference in the Mountain Heritage Literary Festival. She's super involved just in all things North Carolina writing, and she's um, a really fascinating person to talk with just because she's kind of worked in the back end of TV production with writers and all that good stuff, and so she's, she's just great. So here's the interview. Hey, listeners, I'm super excited to be here today with Patty Meredith, who is a North Carolina author and an awesome person. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I can see Patty right now. You guys can't. She's giving me a big grin. (laughs) We were just talking about how both of our dogs are going to make appearances in this uh, conversation, which is not abnormal on my end, as most of you know. Um, Patty is coming to us from Chapel Hill. Is that right?
11: Yeah, Chapel Hill, Chatham County. Chatham County. and there's yeah. a lot of Chatham
3: County in your book right in South of Heaven.
11: Right, more county. more yeah. County, <laughs> mostly.
3: <laughs> a lot of a lot of North Carolina, which is always really fun. Um, before we kind of dive into your novel, which is South of Heaven, it's a Southern fiction novel, I wanted to talk a little bit about your background because you have sort of an interesting background to me just with writing and TV production. So I know that you worked as a producer on North Carolina people with William Friday, right?
11: I did. That was the luckiest thing. That um, we moved here. Uh, I got married and moved here, and I would worked in commercial television before, and my husband was working in commercial television here, and so, you know, I needed to find something out of commercial television. So I went to yeah. work for North <laughs> Carolina Public TV, and it was at a time where they were looking for somebody to help Mr. Friday with the show, and it was the best job in the world because. Um, you know, what? What I did was Mr. Friday would tell Zena Norwood, uh, "Well, I think we ought to talk to like Reynolds Price or Lee Smith mm-hmm. or Doris Betts or something." You know, this week. Yeah. And Zena would call me and give me their phone number, and I'd call them and and say, "Would you like to talk to Mr. Friday?" And they'd be like, "Yeah." <laughs> so, <you> know, <laughs> it wasn't really hard. Of course. <laughs> yeah. But it was really fun. It was really fun, and he was just. Absolutely as great as every as you would think. He was just so he was so kind and smart and cared and loved North Carolina so much and he really loved the writers. That was his yeah. friend. You know, he, he always did all the you know, the state representatives and the governor and the educators and all, but he um, he really, really loved the writers.
3: Oh, that's amazing, and so you got to kind of see the back end and how that worked with his conversations with some of these major North Carolina names, right? So I know you mentioned Lee Smith, and
11: Mm I mean,
3: how was that in uh, terms of just what, you know, did that inspire your writing moving forward?
11: It did. I guess um, moving back, moving here, I I, I grew up in Galax, Virginia, but my family's from North Carolina, and but all of a sudden, you know, and I read the Southern writer's Uh, I worked in Chattanooga after I graduated from college at Virginia Tech I worked in television in Chattanooga but I you know read and read the southern writers from North Carolina and then when I moved here and all of a sudden it was like oh there's a reading at the regulator or there's a reading at this you know it was like oh my gosh it was and one funny thing and so you know Getting to know them and see them with the interviews, talking to Mr. Friday and everything. I, my job was to meet him in the lobby and walk him down the hall, and then after the show, I walked him back to the lobbies. And the lobby at UNCTV was really long, you know. So I had <laughs> some <laughs> so they time to get, get to away them. <laughs> from me. They couldn't get away from me. And I remember just saying to Fred Chapel, like, "So, what's the deal? What's the secret to writing?" Mr. Fred Chapel. That's a good
3: and question that's a really good question. Well you know question. I was
11: just like thinking if somebody could just tell me the they could just tell me the secret you know just cut through the all this having to work on it you know. And so what's said, the secret? He said he said it's like plowing with a mule one row at a time and I'm like okay yeah.
3: <laughs> you know what I feel right. like I could <laughs> Yeah, I could actually hear one of your characters in this book saying that, I think.
11: (laughs) (laughs) They probably do. I probably lifted it from Fred Chappell's hallway talk.
3: Oh my gosh, his hallway talk. You should have, you could do a short story collection just on the hallway oh, yeah, conversations. No, a,
11: I'm writing that down. That's a great idea. That would be
3: great. <laughs> I would love it. I'm sure you got so many nuggets from those conversations and just um, that job in general. Did you ever get nervous talking with some of these kids? I was totally
11: always nervous. But the gift of that was, I was always like, Ugh. but I mean, just seeing them laugh with Mr. Friday and just realize they're just really nice people. Yeah. You know, just it's really kind people. And oh so that gosh. was um that was really fun.
3: That's really amazing. Do you ever feel like So, you know, you've worked with writers, you worked in the back end of TV, and that's a pretty creative job as it is. I would even say just like, you know, being around those kinds of people is so inspiring in general. Um, It's something I really like about this podcast too, is just being inspired by writers. Um, Do you feel like you can feel, you know, just your relationship with being a writer versus being a TV producer and that kind of thing, do you kind of feel like those go hand in hand in the end?
11: I hadn't thought about that, but that's that's cool the way to think of it. And but and and really the greatest gift of um and I don't even think of myself as a writer. I feel my, oh my I, I consider myself <laughs> a wannabe. Wanna <laughs> Why do you <laughs> think that is? I wanna be. Why do you think that is? <laughs> I'm a trying to writer. But um I like but the thing is the whole journey of trying to write and taking the workshops and going to the readings and um, I went back and when well, we lived in Memphis and got an MFA in creative writing. But the greatest thing about it was being able to hang out with, with writers. Right. And to be you know, and the people you get to meet and call friends like Darnell Arnold and George Ann Eubanks and you know, just mm-hmm. people that you're like you really admire and then you get to hang out. So if anybody out there wants to hang out with writers, just write. <laughs> come on it's just write really and like <laughs> and <laughs> come <to the> workshops
10: <laughs> yeah well
3: you're you're a pretty avid and uh active participant in the north carolina writing community you're always at table rock writers group and all that kind of stuff which is later this month right
11: Right, in August, I'm excited about that, yeah. Yeah,
3: so I guess rolling off of what you just said, for writers who are kind of looking to, you know, for that introduction to North Carolina's writing scene, that's such a great way to do it. Um, Georgianne and Donna Campbell run that whole or whole deal up there, and it's just beautiful. Um, and I can't imagine how many creative experiences you've had in that area.
11: <laughs> and when <that, laughs> sure. um, I moved back here, a friend of mine from Winston, Catherine Milam, Connected me with uh, Marjorie Hudson and the Kitchen Table Writers, Mm -hmm. and that meet in Pitts and yeah in Pittsburgh. And so that um, that was amazing. And I think I would really credit that being in the Kitchen Table Writers workshop with them for helping me finish this book. So when I
2: moved back, so.
3: Well, special so, yeah. shout out to Marjorie Hudson. Um, yeah. She is a force and her group, yeah, I mean, I can imagine that that was something that really helped push your work yes. forward. I mean, it's, it's, it's. I feel like that we've talked about that a lot on the show too, just how being a part of a writing group really kind of helps. I mean, it's really important, you know, and my it dogs is. are agreeing with me. Can your you dog's <laughs> I'm gonna send them to a writing group. See what they come up with. Um, So let's get into the book a little bit. So South of Heaven, I love this book so much. Um, I love Southern fiction. I think it's one of the best genres. And I think uh, you know while I was reading it, it was a lot of emotions kind of come through because it's a family story, um, but a little bit different, right? So you have sort of a an interesting group of a cast of characters who don't exactly get along (laughs) in the beginning. Right. So they. The characters are great. I mean, you have t- the two sisters who are, you know, kind of leading the story, so Leona and Fern. Tell me about how you kind of crafted their relationship and their characters in general.
11: Well, it was. it's interesting. I was a, at another workshop at Hyman, Kentucky uh, years ago, and um, I had this... I was just write, writing in a workshop, and I had this scene come to me where it's a, a young boy... Um, in a patch of bamboo I could just kind of see this kid in a patch of bamboo and he was he was talking about how his father was missing in Vietnam and that was the the beginning of South of Heaven and that was Dean the character Dean and so um, I knew that he was he was looking he was thinking about his dad who was missing and he was wondering if the bamboo was the same in Vietnam. And I realized that that bamboo was the same bamboo that was in my grandmother's backyard in Carthage. And so from that one scene, I had Dean. And so then you start talking to Dean, like who, you know, trying to find out about him. And then you find out about his mom, his mother, you know, Fern, his mother. And then you get to know Fern and she has some secrets um about uh, dean and his father and then then there's the sister and i have a sister my mother was a sister my grandmother was one of 14 she had many sisters oh, well. and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know my friends all have sisters you know? <laughs> and it's just a very <laughs> special relationship
7: it is, you know, I have it's a sister. your
11: best mm-hmm. friend, and it's the person who knows exactly what your button, where your buttons are, you know. Yeah. And so it's all, it's everything, and I wouldn't take anything in the world from my sister, and so I knew Fern had a sister, Leona, and that they were very different, and and that there was some angst there, that they were estranged, and just in the their conversations, I guess I learned about Leona just from. Putting them in a situation, putting them together, and listening to them talk to each other, and I realized that Fern was very defensive, you know, with Leona and with her life. And um, the characters really deserve all the credit. They told me the story. They're um, uh, they talked this to me this morning about being with this podcast with you. They were giving <laughs> me pointers. <laughs> they are with me all the time. <laughs> You might have to write a sequel then. Oh <laughs> uh, no! And of course, they have. You can imagine that Fern and Leona have very different advice. But um, but yeah, just let, just letting the story kind of come to you, and with the characters, letting them talk to you and listening to what right. they have to say.
3: And so you mentioned secrets um, and just like the, the role of secrets in their sisterhood and in their family in general, really. Um, there's quite a few, you know, more difficult themes that kind of relate into that, just the secrets they've kept from each other. So whether that be like in a marriage or alcoholism, um, hiding that, uh, you know, just, just general dysfunction. Do you have which character was the most difficult for you to write about?
11: I think the, the one that the person that was most difficult was Leona, because I didn't want her to be a stereotype. I didn't want her to be just a, I mean, this one friend of mine said, that Leona's a piece of work, you know.
4: <laughs> you know what,
3: I thought the exact same thing. From, it's, but it's funny, in the beginning, she is. You're just yeah. thinking, "Gosh, yeah. ah, she is yeah. just a pain. But she as it is. goes on, you know, you kind right. of, like, it be a lot. Yeah, the dynamic changes because the secrets come out. Um, And I I guess that's kind of the beauty of this story, too. Or one of the great things about this story is just the there's sort of a mysterious, like a mystery tied into there their family and their relationships and so as you kind of learn more about leona's life and her experiences and um you know there's a couple of twists that happen in her life for sure you kind of yeah. feel more empathetic towards her um right. but it is interesting you know at the beginning i'm like gosh this is a rough character <laughs> i have to i had to ask about her because i had a feeling it might have been kind of <laughs> you
11: oh know ruling to write about her <laughs> Yeah, and my sister was like, "Would you please tell everybody that I'm not Leona?" And I'm like, "Yeah, you're not Leona." Yeah. But okay, well, there, um, there you go but, on record <laughs> on the record. But it's it's um, and you do realize that she just has she's she's carrying so much, and she's right. trying to protect so much, and and it makes you. Um, I remember going back to Mr. Friday, you know sometimes it, it, with, the, with things I would be talking about I'd be upset about something and I, or somebody or something, and he'd say, "Miss Meredith, what are they afraid of?" Oh. And he would always he had that wisdom to recognize that if someone was angry or someone was acting a certain way, it wasn't out of malice or whatever. It was usually because they were a, there was some right. fear. Oof. And of course, Leona has a lot of fear. And that's why she is so protective and comes across like she does. And insecurity. And so, right. but she was the hardest to write about to try to make her um, dimensional and not just this, you know, ju- not just the bad person. Right. And Doyle's not a bad person either. You know, I didn't, none of my people are bad and nothing happens bad to the emu. So it's all happy time. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I do want to talk about the emus. One more thing about fear, though. <laughs> I one of one of the lines that I really loved in this book, and it was one of my highlighted um, selections, was when Leona kind of she talks about being afraid, and she goes, "I really wonder if it's possible to not be afraid." <laughs> Um, yeah. and I thought that was a really powerful line. I, th- I believe you ended a chapter with that. And it was kind of one of those moments where you, you close the book and you're like, you know, I'm going to think about this for a little bit. Um, I think it was really powerful, especially in the like, kind of where we are in the world right now. There's a Aww. lot of fear and yeah. a lot of people who are kind of, um, because of that fear, just very either defensive or um, kind of push themselves into a hole, or you know whatever. And I think uh, it's it's definitely and that kind of leads into so in this book too. There's um, mention it's around when the Bill Clinton Hillary Clinton Monica Lewinsky right. scandal happened, um, and I feel like that kind of parallels what's going on with Leona's life too yes, and just being yeah. afraid so she's you know you, you really kind of understand like okay what was the role of fear there too And you kind of see how that just sort of that idea runs through so many different situations over time so I thought that was a really clever thing to kind of rope in
11: Hannah I didn't even thank you you're making me sound like I thought about it you're making <laughs>
3: Don't act like you didn't. <laughs> You're giving me too much credit.
11: <laughs> no, it's like, oh my god, I need to write that down. <laughs> oh my gosh, we're having yeah. Too 1998.
3: Much
11: fun. <laughs> I said it in 1998, and um, I needed it to be uh, not that far away from the um, Vietnam War because of Dean's dad be- being missing. He was missing over 20 years, but still, and right. and the that that was an interesting spring. Yeah. It was an interesting I mean, time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just actually
3: finished watching the American Crime Story: Impeachment about the whole oh, thing, and I learned yeah. so much about it. I honestly didn't really, and it was it's kind of perfect timing reading your book because it helped me kind of put that together a little bit more. But really yes. crazy, crazy stuff. Um, so I'm gonna let you read a selection from the book and do you want to tell us a little bit about its placement um
11: well i i thought i would i thought i'd just read the very beginning that's original isn't it
3: (laughs) (laughs) that's perfect
11: (laughs) that's original um the, the novel is told in three voices uh in three point of views fern's leona's and fern's son dean and every chapter is from a point of view of one of those characters and it starts out with fern and so I'll just read the very beginning of the book. Time lingered more than past in the sand hills of North Carolina, where no ancient mountains or ocean tides marked the days. The sand hills lay low, midway between, flat land, where in summer acres of lank-leaf tobacco flourished in spite of its fall from grace. A Venetian blind sagged over the front window of the Citizen Times. Fern McQueen was careful with the tattered pole, Every morning she expected the string to unravel in her hand. Across the way on the courthouse lawn, her son sat on a granite bench tucked beneath a white oak, a memorial to her husband, Mac, missing in action since the Vietnam War. Dean visited the bench most mornings before clocking in at Frank's garage. "'We talk, Mama,' he said, in my head. Fern had tried to dissuade her son from telling people about these talks, knowing it only brought about more pity from the town of Carthage. But Dean was Dean. Her boy had no secrets. Fern had never held out hope that Mac would be found alive. She'd known he was gone, maybe even before the earnest men in stiff uniforms said missing in action. That was 26 years ago. A woman whose husband had been lost on the same mission as Mac recently sent Fern a letter claiming to know about an excavation site in Laos. She said news would be coming soon. Fern had gotten other letters through the years from groups asking her to sign petitions, join their efforts. She never had. Fern believed Matt going missing was a misery dealt by the hand of God, a misery she'd brought upon herself. She'd thrown all the letters away. With the dogwoods declaring spring, tired Christmas lights still dangled from worn cords along the flat roof line. Of Moore County's sandstone courthouse The lights remained year round Being too much trouble to take down And put back up Surely the strands had been replaced But in Fern's mind They were the same ones that glowed red and green years ago On that snowy December night That changed everything It was as if every way she turned A monument stood To all that she could not undo So, that's Fern That's Fern being all thoughtful at the newspaper I th-
3: <laughs> office <laughs> <laughs> i mean what else do you do in the newspaper what do, office, you, do? You, know? <laughs> what do you do yeah
7: <laughs> no i mean i
3: think that's a really great selection though because um thank you for reading that it's it's perfect it really shows perfectly what kind of person she is i think just like i guess not what kind of person she is but more of what she carries with her a lot of guilt a lot of kind of um these lingering thoughts and ghosts from her past so yeah. she it's it's a good introduction to the book where you kind of get to know like okay well this is going to be a lot of unpacking <laughs>
11: <You> right <know? laughs> a lot of unpacking
3: <laughs> um so I, like guess another thing too is your family is from Carthage right so you can yes. you know that area very well
7: pretty
11: well that's the you know I tell people like if if you're from Carthage forgive me for making up churches and Maybe the roads don't go exactly (laughs) like that because we visited. We'd visit Carthage, you know, for the holidays and in the summer. Both my grandmothers lived there, and my uncle and my uh, my aunt and her husband came back later, and so cousins and so um, it. But we lived in Galax, and so it was kind of fun to use Carthage as a setting. Uh, Right, you know, as so it could be a little. A little blurry as far as the (laughs) real goes, you know.
3: (laughs) I love that, though. That's really great. And I think, again, you know, one of my favorite things while reading this was just how many landmarks and just different locations and roads and media outlets i recognize just good, living good. in <laughs> north carolina you know i love the role of the news and observer even you know it's like yeah. always got to read the news and observer or this you know fern working at the citizen times stuff like that um and i grew up in chapel hill slash pittsboro ish so yeah. you don't read too much about Pittsburgh either <laughs>
11: And I had Pittsburgh so, in there. I yeah. know. I
3: loved it. I loved it. Burley's Diner was in there. <laughs> Burley's I thought that was Dine, great.
11: Burley's Diner. And I couldn't, I just couldn't call the Citizen Times the pilot because I feel like the pilot newspaper is so iconic. Right. You know, it's just such a thing that I just couldn't, yeah. I couldn't yep. <laughs> do it. So I had to I totally understand. call it the Citizen Times <laughs> instead of the pilot. But my mother got the, we moved up there to Galex when I was one. And my mother got the pilot newspaper every week. She that was her thing when the newspaper came in the mail because she missed home so badly. Oh my gosh. I know. (laughs) It
8: was weird.
3: (laughs) Not weird. That's nice. (laughs) I have one more question. And of course it's about the emus. (laughs) So when you pick up a copy of South of Heaven, um, you will immediately see an emu staring back at you on the cover. Um, And one of the storylines is Dean, who we were talking about a little bit earlier, Fern's son, he decides that he wants to, you know, have an emu farm. What what made you decide on the emus? Like, do do you love emus? <laughs> I love I emus.
11: I do now. I do now. <laughs> They're a hard bird to I love, like- or whatever. But I knew that Dean Dean wanted to be somebody. He wanted to be his own boss. He has some troubles. He has some difficulties, and he works at Frank's garage, and he's doing great. But he he's always had. He's just yearned to be his own boss and to do his own thing and make a mark. And, and really in the 90s, it, there, the emu, people did think that was going to be the next big thing. I don't know what they were thinking, but it was like, but emu farms, you know, emu farms, that was kind of the, the thing. So um, I thought, okay, that's, that would be what Dean would would come up with, possibly.
3: I love that. I think that's really unique. And it's impossible to, I, I, it's, you, you can't walk by this book. <laughs> Which I, you can't. It, the, the emu just stares right into your soul and you immediately yes. have to know what it's, what it's, uh, <laughs> what it's thinking. Yeah. Um, right. I think that's a really unique thing. And I love that you were able to kind of hop into his brain like that and just like, you know, this is what he would do. This is exactly yeah. what he would do. Yeah. Um, and I actually lied. I have one more question I wanted to ask just okay. about writing in general. So if you would say, if you were to look back on this whole experience writing this book, what would you, what's one thing you've learned um, about yourself or about writing that you wish you had known before you started writing it?
11: Oh, that's a great question. There's so, um, I don't think I would have finished this book if it hadn't been for the pandemic and the quarantine. You know, I've been writing and going to workshops and going doing the MFA thing and writing and blah 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 for decades. And I don't think I ever realized just how much time it took to keep us to, to do what I needed to do, to keep a story in my head. Um, and I'm not and I don't think this is true of everyone. Everybody's different, but for me it really helped to be to have almost no social life. <laughs> for quite a long period so to stay in the story right to really stay in the story and you can and I know some people can get up and they can write between the hours of 6 and 12 and that I kind of needed the time for to let it to let things percolate in my head and then go to the computer Mm -hmm. when they can and and to be there be available at the computer be there when the when the um When the people talked or when the idea came to me and so Uh it was just um really setting aside the time and i think i I, I think you know people tried to tell me i I mean poor darnell and georgian and everybody tried to tell me for years (laughs) so i guess the other thing would be to listen to the instructors (laughs) listen to these when you go to the workshops listen to what they say (laughs) You know that's that's a biggie. Instead of just sitting there like, oh, this is really fun, but um, but I think the time learning that it really does take a lot of time, and, and so that's a decision you have to make. Do I want to say no to to a lot of um, social interactions and really do this? Is that worth it? Or you know, do I want to have a life? <laughs> you know, so um, so I think that's something.
3: that's great and you know what i guess you just think of it like your social life is now with your characters right so it's just a little bit different and
11: fern and all the gang (laughs) gang. (laughs) where i go go, i love
3: it it. well this was so much fun patty thank you so much for joining us on charlotte Reader's podcast
11: thank you and i'd like to make us take us take time and just do a shout out to um Scott Douglas at Main Street Rag, and thank him for publishing this book. We're very lucky in North Carolina to have the small presses, and Scott does a great great job.
3: Yes, shout out to Scott. This is, I mean, this is a great book, and I think he's probably just as proud of it as you are, so. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, thank you so much. This has been a great time.
11: Thank you. I enjoyed it so much, and Hannah, thank you for everything. Thank you.
2: You can subscribe to Charlotte Reader's Podcast wherever you'd like to get your podcasts. We're on all major podcast platforms, and the best part is, it's free. Oh, and if you like what we're doing, please leave us a review, because when you do, we travel much farther and wider in podcast land.
0: Hey listeners, welcome back to uh, Act uh, 4 of this uh, episode. Thank you for hanging with us, but uh, hey, you know, uh, just because you didn't go first doesn't mean you're not... uh, a really good one and that's the case with uh, our new york times bestselling author uh, megan miranda who we're featuring uh, on the show today i recommended her book a couple weeks ago uh, having read it and really enjoyed it uh, the latest uh, novel she's written is called uh, the last to vanish uh, she writes suspense uh, she's uh, as i said a best-selling author of a number of novels all the missing girls the perfect stranger the last house guest uh, which was a reese witherspoon book club pick the Girl from Widow Hills, which was a book we uh, featured on the podcast early on. You can go to the guest uh, tab on the website and scroll down and listen to that one. Also, the novel is such a quiet place. She's written several books, too, for young adults. Uh, she grew up in New Jersey, graduated from MIT, which I always found interesting being the suspense novelist. She went to MIT, and she lives in North Carolina with her uh, husband and two children. Uh, this story is um, it's very interesting. It's... Uh, set in a North Carolina mountain town called Cutters Pass where Abigail Lovett manages the Passage Inn. It's a small town, close-knit community. Uh, outsiders are just that, they're outsiders. Uh, and it's, uh, it's thrust in the spotlight when journalist Landon West, who was staying at the inn to investigate the story of what they call the vanishing trail uh, where people disappear. He disappears himself. And when Landon's brother shows up looking for answers, Abby can't help him but feels the town is closing ranks and uh, she's you know, she moved to her t- past ten years ago. She's got some secrets on of her own, but she's still kind of an outsider and she starts to find some incriminating evidence that may bring everyone closer to the truth, but she soon discovers how little she knows about her coworkers, her neighbors, or even those who are closest to her. It's a great it's a great suspense book. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, Laura Dave, New York Times, bestselling author of The Last Thing He Told Me said, The last to vanish is Megan Miranda at her finest, an eerie edge of the earth location, riveting characters, and thrills that just don't quit. Love this novel. So um, I asked uh, Megan uh, what, uh, what was her inspiration for this story and uh, why she chose to explore the theme she chose to explore in the book. So let's uh, listen to what she had to say.
12: I first got the idea for this book when I was walking on a trail in my neighborhood. Um, It had just stopped raining, but once I stepped inside the trail, it still sounded like it was with the rain falling from the trees. And I started to get this idea for a place where it felt like the past was still happening. And I got the sense of my main character's voice right then and started writing on my phone um, as I was walking. And I was really interested in this idea of a place that had a very notorious history, um, but doesn't try to hide it, and instead really embraces that history. Um, And even though this town of Cutters Pass is known as the most dangerous place in North Carolina, this is not anything that deters tourists from coming. Um, If anything, it makes them want to come, because they believe that they will be the one to finally uncover the truth about the mysteries of these seven missing people.
0: Yeah, that's interesting how she was inspired just walking through the neighborhood, no matter, you know, your inspiration yeah. can come from all kinds of places. I feel like she just whipped out her
3: phone too. She's like, I'm gonna get started right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't yeah. wanna lose
2: that inspiration.
0: <laughs> <You get it. laughs> yeah, and I, th- I think, you know, um, I think uh, you know, Brian mentioned Earlier, uh, this idea of questions, asking questions, and and you don't think of that all the time. But Megan does a good job in her book of having her characters ask questions, and when they ask questions, you start asking mm-hmm. questions as a reader and wondering mm-hmm. what it is that the that they're up against. Because Abby, the protagonist, is questioning everything about her life and about the people around her, people that she knows well, and and really, you know. It's interesting because the story, uh, eventually four people had disappeared. Uh, they called them the fraternity four uh, 25 years ago and the town became known for it. And, and I think they have some end in the town, you know, the last stop in or something because that was the last place those four fraternity brothers, you know, had a beer before they went off on the trail and then disappeared. Mm-hmm. And that brought people to the town, you know, these thrill seekers trying to find out and then they go out. And then other people disappeared over time. And then the journalist who comes to investigate, he disappears, you know, and then the brother comes to try to investigate what happened. So, uh, re- really nice setup. Um, interesting to me that you find that on a new yeah. wall, <laughs> you, <know, Yeah. laughs> you know, she's got a very yeah. uh, vivid imagination. So, mm-hmm. um, well, let's do this. Let's listen to, um a little reading and then I've got another question I put to her about thriller writing, but uh, let's hear in her voice uh, some of the novel.
12: I'm going to be reading from the beginning of the book where Abby is working alone at the passage in where she works. He arrived at night in the middle of a downpour, the type of conditions more suitable for disappearance. I was alone in the lobby removing the hand-carved walking sticks from the barrel beside the registration desk, replacing them with our stash of sleek navy umbrellas when someone pushed through one of the double doors at the entrance, the sound of rain cascading over the gutters, the rustle of hiking pants, the screech of wet boots on polished floors. A man stood just inside as the door fell shut behind him, with nothing but a black raincoat and some sob story about his camping plans. Nothing to be afraid of. The weather, a hiker. I was only half listening at first. His request varied under a string of apologies. I'm so sorry, I'm usually more prepared than this. And I know this is a huge inconvenience, but we can get you taken care of, I said, making my way behind the desk where I had the room availability list already pulled up on the single computer screen. This was the type of rain that drove hikers off the mountain, sudden and fierce enough to shake their resolve, when they'd give a second thought to their gear, their stamina, their will. Unlike him, I had been ready for this. The back of our property ended where the local access trail began It was marked by a small wooden sign leading day hikers on a path to the falls, but the trail then continued on in a steep ascent, pressing upward until it ultimately collided with the great Appalachian beyond. Our guests loved the convenience, the accessibility, that touch of the wild, the mountain looming so close from the other side of their floor-to-ceiling windows. From the ridge of that mountain, at the T intersection of the two trails, I knew you could see us too. The dome of the inn and the town just beyond with the steeple of the church pushing up through the treetops. The promise of civilization. Sometimes on nights like this, they spilled down the mountain like ants scurrying out of a poison mound, searching for a place of last resort. Our lights drawing them closer. The first sign of respite off the trail.
0: And, you know, sometimes people say, well, you know, thriller writers, um, you know, it's just all about the action. But uh, I love the description mm-hmm. there at, at the end of that read. What do you think?
2: Yeah, it's a very atmospheric setting for a thriller. And I liked how the rain kind of played into that. And she talked about that being yeah. part of the setting when she actually I'm, came up with the I idea. too.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. But I, I'm. I'm Cutting, cutting the yard on my, uh, my big John Deere and I run over this uh, ant hill recently and I thought back to that expression when the ants started scurrying. It's like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you're up on the mountain, you see the lights, the steeples pushing Good. through the top of the canopy and, uh, you know, it's like ants scurrying out of the hill to try to find, yeah you know, refuge of a last resort.
2: Yeah, it's a great image.
0: Yeah. All right. So, you know, we've got a uh, New York Times selling author here. So, um, uh, look, I'm going to try to find the secret to... Thriller writing, right? So I ask her this question. Uh, I say, uh, hey, Megan, as a thriller writer, what do you enjoy most about the process of writing thrillers? And what's the number one tip you have for writing thrillers? So listen closely, folks.
12: My favorite thing about writing thrillers is also my favorite thing about reading them. I love putting together the puzzle pieces and trying to solve the mystery. And when I'm writing them, um, that's also my favorite element is trying to discover what this puzzle is that I'm creating, um, and to unwind the mystery, not just of the plot, but the mysteries that are inside each of the characters as well. I'd say my top tip for writing thrillers is to think about the tension that is involved in every different element of the story. So not only the tension of the plot, um, but also the tension between characters, the tension between the choices that they have to make, um, the tension between a character and the setting. Um, I love to create a setting that feels like a character and in the same way that, Every character has a different relationship with one another. Every character also has a different relationship with the setting. And I think that it's really all in the perspective, whether you see a place as the most beautiful place in the world or the most terrifying place in the world. And I try to use that as much as possible. I think when a character is afraid, then everything takes on an element of danger. And so I really try to embrace that and use the setting as much as possible um, to increase that feeling.
0: Well, that's interesting because it ties into that. Uh, we talked about setting in our last episode, mm-hmm. and I mentioned the book uh, by Donald Moss, uh, how to write a breakout novel. And, and that's what he talked about when it came to setting, is you know having the character identify with it and speak to how the setting makes them feel. And that's what... Uh, Megan was doing so well in this book is uh, giving us uh, this uh, feeling of this place through Abby at the end, who's beginning to feel terrified about uh, what really happened on this trail. Yeah, right next to the end.
2: Yeah, I think that's such a good point, too, to make sure that there's tension between the characters and the setting and that the characters are relating to the setting in different ways. Like, I think for me, as someone who doesn't write mystery or, th- or thriller, I would think that it's all about the story and all about the plot, but it's interesting that she thinks so much of it is about the setting too, which really kind of imbues every scene with that feeling of tension, even when there's not like a big plot twist. Yeah.
3: I I feel like if you think about the most stressful or kind of creepy scenarios that you're in, in your life, you know, it is a lot about setting like where you are or mm-hmm. um, what's happening around you. And it is, it's interesting. Cause you don't really think of it like that. You're right. Like when you're reading or thinking about writing and, uh, or just thrillers in general, you're not thinking, like, oh, well, you know why this is so scary is because it was said in this dark alley, <laughs> you know, just different stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But it's so true. And it's, I mean, the way you kind of um, make that an effective thing in your book is by really kind of mimicking what a scary situation actually feels like. And that is so much about your surroundings. And I think that's really kind of a clever way to do it. Um, and probably just a way that a lot of people haven't really thought about
0: totally yet but it's I love that yeah I was just thinking about the storks again and truth <laughs> is a fucking bird there was a, there's a scene where there's like five storks around this this guy and it's like that's a bit creepy I don't think I've ever yeah, these experienced these storks have that stuck before. with so, you yeah so just uh, <laughs> so. So, so suspense writers and thriller writers keep keep thinking about that setting it makes a, it makes a huge difference Stephen King has oh certainly gosh, taken yeah. advantage of that he's great at that years, mm-hmm. uh, has he not yeah
2: Charlotte Readers Podcast, Beyond 300, is about you, the listener. We want your feedback, opinions, recommendations, and questions. Email us or leave us a voice message, and you might hear us mention you or play your message on the podcast. Just go to the homepage or contact page at charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the links to email us or leave a voice message. It's easy to do. Let's have some fun together.
0: All right. Well, thanks to Megan Miranda for that uh, piece and uh, her her feedback. And now we're jumping into... final thoughts and takeaways and uh, what's coming in the next episode so uh, Hannah final thoughts as you get closer and closer (laughs) to uh, the the big day.
3: oh man yeah I feel like with all of these with every episode it's like you learn you take away so much information it's probably one of the best parts about being able to feature more authors and their blog posts things like that Um, I think when like off the top of my head the the things that made the biggest impression on me today I, I love the post from Tracy on perseverance I felt like That was just a really light, bright spot, Um, you know, no matter if you're a writer or a reader or, um, you know, engineer, (laughs) anything at all. I think it's really kind of a cool uh, thing that she was talking about, just kind of keeping your head up and pushing forward. And I I really loved everything that she said. And and I loved Megan Miranda, just everything we just talked about with... um, the setting of thrillers. I'm a huge thriller reader. Like I love reading thrillers. I love watching thrillers. um, But it's really not something I'd ever really thought too much about just like why exactly is it so thrilling? (laughs) Or like what, what makes this so scary? Or what what's getting my blood moving so quickly right now? And and it really made me think to realize like, oh, it's it's because of where this is actually taking place. And I think I've mentioned uh, the show Blackbird the last Time that the last time I recorded, and um, I, I was thinking about that, that the whole time she was talking because it mostly takes place in a prison, um, like a supermax prison. And you're like, well, no wonder these guys are so terrifying <laughs> because this is not a supermax prison. Um, so I think that's something I'm going to think about a lot, just as I'm reading thrillers, which I'm hoping to. Um, well, you know, Landis, you told me you're like you're probably going to have to switch to audiobooks while you're dealing with the lack of sleep. So. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, I took your rec. I took your recommendation. Went and watched you? the Blackbird. Binged it, and uh, yeah, what, the, the true crime is think? really interesting. And uh, boy, it was it was creepy. I tell you, the guy who Ooh, played Larry. the uh, the serial killer was a real creep, such a good man. actor. You,
3: though you're just like, just oh the, my gosh, his voice yeah. such a crazy voice. But the yeah, crazy show.
0: <laughs> yeah, and and, and I love you know how the FBI stayed. On the case and stay persistent. I guess that's why we should probably defund the FBI because they don't ever do anything you know, <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah. You know? uh, they don't. They don't find missing people. They don't solve crimes. They just. Uh, you know. Never found like, the bodies. Like, <laughs> so, yeah. So. Uh, but yeah. I, I, yeah. I love that. Uh, so yeah, Sarah, you take your takeaways.
2: Oh gosh, I think those were all great points. Um, and I feel like I say this every episode, but I learned a lot. <laughs> um, I, I feel like I got a lot of information here. And um, a lot of our conversations kind of came around to the idea of creativity and where does it come from? How do you harness it? How do you use it? So I think that's just something that is always interesting to think about as a writer is like, where do ideas come from? And none of us can really predict that or pin that down. Um, You just have to kind of grab them when they come to you and write them down because I always have the problem where I'm like, oh, I'll remember that because I I really love the idea when I first get it and then I don't write it down and then I don't remember it. (laughs) (laughs) So carry your notebook or, you know, take notes on your phone or whatever it is. but yeah, harnessing that creativity and sort of the flip side of that is like perseverance. Like how do you take that initial spark and then not lose the, the joy of it when you're in the slog of trying to write something and you're, you know, on draft six and it's completely different than it was how it started. And how do you, you know, keep pushing through to see the light at the end of the tunnel? Um, so yeah, and I also just got great inspiration too, out of talking about like the idea of perseverance and hearing about people who made great careers, even after significant setbacks and rejection. And, um, I think that's a story that a lot of writers have experienced in some ways. So it's always inspiring to, to hear that reminder.
0: Yeah, I, I would agree. And my takeaway is that, um, you know, we had some great variety on here, um, you know, with the, the true crime, uh, the, uh, <laughs> chess player uh, who robbed banks in his spare time, The historical fiction that, that uh, you know, a slave story that was brought to life because of a body found in, in a wall. I mean, come on. And then the Southern fiction where you're, you've got the North Carolina scenery that uh, Hannah so recognized because she grew up in, <laughs> in that area with that, uh, with, with Patty's. And then you got uh, the, the super thriller. And I like the, you know, one of the things that um, was said about that is uh, enjoying puzzle pieces, trying to solve, you know, as a writer, trying to to solve the puzzle yourself. I think that's one of the fun parts of writing that I think is uh, creating this puzzle and then trying to figure out, you know, how the pieces fit together because you don't always have those answers when you start writing a book and it's it's really fun. And of course, I'm going to echo, I I love the perseverance conversation. I I like Brian's tips on how to write a book. He's well synopsis, but the perseverance idea is something that comes through because I've spoken to a couple of people recently about, well, how do you write a book, Landis, and how do you do that and the other? And a lot of it is um, getting connected, uh, you know, getting on newsletter lists, uh, taking classes, but also it's just uh, persevering to persevere, right? So, you know, we'll have to keep after that. So, hey, yeah, so great, great episode today from my perspective. Enjoyed uh, spending the time, and uh, now we're going to turn it over to the melodic voice of uh, our co-host Sarah to tell us what's coming next. Sure. So in our
2: next episode, in addition to more book recommendations, as always, and a two-minute tip from Charlotte Litt, we feature four different authors. Um, we feature Benjamin Gilmer and his book, The Other Dr. Gilmer, Two Men, a Murder in an Unlikely Fight for Justice, a true crime book about what Dr. Benjamin Gilmer found out when he went to work at a rural clinic about the previous doctor at the clinic who shared his last name, a doctor who seen beloved and respected until he strangled his ailing father what one New York Times bestselling author called a remarkable true life medical detective story. Um, you're definitely not going to want to miss that one. The book is, is really compelling. I'm enjoying it a lot. Um, we also, also feature Avery Caswell in her novel Salvation, based on the true story of two young sisters who were kidnapped by a traveling evangelist outside Charlotte, North Carolina, but one award-winning author called a harrowing novel about delusion and determination, faith and grit, good and evil, a stunning debut by an important talent, And we feature Sheila Myers in her novel, The Truth of Who You Are, a story inspired by actual events and the people who once lived in the Smoky Mountains before it became a national park, where people use stories to hide uncomfortable truths to protect their homework and family, what one author calls a sweeping family saga full of love, heartbreak, hard times, and the sustaining power of family. And in our writing discussion, we're going to feature 2022 Gilbert Chapel Distinguished Poet for the North Carolina Poetry Society, Kenneth Chamley, with his community blog post titled Squeezing the Excess Out of a Poem. And we're also going to have a very fun discussion about writer procrastination, uh, using Landis' recent Wade Scripts blog post as a starting point entitled Procrastination, a Novelist's Friend or Foe. And we also hope to share listeners' ideas about how they procrastinate. Um, So I think we have um, an option up on the website if you want to go in and leave a comment or even record something through SpeakPipe through the the contact form on our website. Please tell us about how you procrastinate. (laughs) If you're a writer, I'm sure that you have your own experiences with that and methods or even if it's not about writing, whatever it is, however, procrastination plays a role in your life. If you have any um, fun stories about the things that you do to procrastinate, we would love to hear them because we're going to be talking about ours.
0: And we're also going to, uh, uh, Sarah's being humble here, but we're going to uh, feature some of her poetry as well. She's going to read a couple of her pieces, which uh, I found uh, very interesting. What's the title of the chapbook, Sarah?
2: Uh, it's called Weird Women. <laughs> and it's Weird basically Woman. about, <laughs> yeah, all the poems are about kind of odd female characters. So. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, I one right. I, I love the one about the men who think the woman's a <laughs> witch. So, yeah, it's great. All right, listeners, so thank you for hanging with us. Uh, We appreciate you spending time with us today as we uh, uh, focus uh, on uh, books and writing topics and help authors give voice to the written words. Uh, Join us next time on Charlotte Readers Podcast.